Welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today Ollie Brady is back to talk about a classic, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Hi, Ollie. Hey, Sarah. I'm delighted to be back uh... And I'm delighted that when I do get to come back, I get to talk about a movie that I genuinely enjoy, stroke, hate, 45 minutes in the middle of it, which shouldn't be there and doesn't need to be there. And, oh, oh Sarah. Are you sure you wouldn't rather talk about Headhunter again? Uh, listen, <laughs> Headhunter was a breezy 71 minutes. And by breezy, I mean 71 minutes that felt like four hours. Um, this is conservatively four hours. And it could be cut down to a movie that was an hour and a half long. I, look, I, I don't want to come out tonight because yeah. at the end I'm probably going to give this like four or five stars because it's a really great mm-hmm. movie and I genuinely enjoys, I, I enjoyed it today. I watched it today, like literally just before we come in, I watched this movie, um, which is going to be weird when I forget some of the stuff that happens in it. Um, but it's a really good film that just suffers from the fact that there's just this hour in the middle where you're like, I don't give a yeah. shit. I don't care. I don't care who Will Scarlet is. I don't care. I don't care. Will Scarlet, you add nothing to this movie. This is a subplot we do not need. Goodbye. Yeah. I like this movie, but it's a movie. It's two and a half hours long, and it feels every second of it's two and a half hours. Jesus Christ, it feels every (laughs) single second that it is. Sarah, what movie are we doing? Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner as Robin of Loxley. Does he even try to do an accent? No, no, he does not. He sounds exactly like he does in every movie where he plays Kevin Costner. Um, Wait, should we introduce uh, the podcast and say why you decided to do this podcast, Sarah? Because that was always my favorite. Sure. (laughs) Sarah, why did you decide to do this podcast? (laughs) I decided to do this podcast because uh, I have often found that my students' perceptions of the medieval world come from films, like perhaps this one. And I got that very much confirmed in the past year when I actually taught a medieval film course. And all of my students were very surprised that all the movies were wrong. I can't believe that they were surprised. I mean, what movies did you watch with them this year? Braveheart. As we agreed, uh, almost 100% historically accurate. Almost 100% completely wrong. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven. Wait, wait, what's one thing that the Braveheart got wrong to? Well, I mean, the, you know, that use uh, prime noctis was not a thing. And if it were a thing, it would have been called use prime noctis and not primo nocta as it is in this movie. Listen, it was that a movie. primo nocta for that lord. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> and it was obviously a real thing. Uh, and then you watched, um, I nearly said Game of Thrones. Then you watched um, Kingdom of Heaven, you know, obviously your favorite movie of all mm-hmm. time. Exactly. Uh, we watched El Cid, where I audibly groaned when watching it alone every time they said the word Spain, mm. I, which is a lot. I also think that maybe El Cid would give this movie a run for its money in the uh, in the movies that are at least an hour too long. Like El Cid, it's good, good movie, historically important. 
just... It does not need to be three hours. Ooh. Also, I hate it, but well, in yeah, addition I know. to I that, listened it didn't to your need to be three hours. It. The whole time I was there going, do, do I also hate this movie? Because <laughs> might. it's been a long time since I watched it. I was there going, as you were describing it, I was thinking, I might, maybe I hate Elsa. <laughs> The real goal of this podcast is to make everybody hate all movies set in the Middle Ages. That sounds like the perfect thing. Uh, and this one, as we know, has Kevin Costner in it. Um, the most right. the most British of, of actors to play uh, Robin of Loxley. Yep. And Morgan Freeman as his friend Azim Edin Bashir al-Bakir. You pronounce that way better than I ever could. Because I'm looking at it written down here. And first of all, I've seen the movie maybe... 50 times that's not an exaggeration there's a good chance I've seen this movie like 50 times and I have always thought his name was Nazim um, and now I say that's Azim Edin Bashir al-Bakir uh, and as I'm saying that the entire time they're going I'm putting a lot of emphasis on the the ear sounds to make it sound like a pronouncer <laughs> probably but I just can't um, yeah it, it, I mean I'm going to go on a limb and say I pronounced it better than Kevin Costner of course you did because uh, Kevin Costner he just gives up pronouncing it after the first time he says it because he was like Nazim Akizim okay good job Kevin hey Azim Azim yeah that's Kevin Costin <laughs> we have Marie, um, Marie Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio as Marion a person who I have seen in nothing and I've seen her in The Abyss and I'm sure I've seen her in other stuff she's a very very pretty lady a very distinctive look um, and she's got curly hair and stuff. And I think she could pass for Irish. Sarah thinks she could pass for Jewish. Um, which is not something I don't think I've ever said for an Irish person before. That I don't think it's like... <laughs> she's like the one crossover. We could pass for Jews. I don't think we could. Most of the time, maybe I could. I've got a neck beard at the minute, so mm. kind of. Yeah, maybe, if you grew, maybe if you grew out the beard, get some payas. I reckon I could. Hold on a second. A little bit of baldness going on there. Um, I can just let the hair grow out a little bit over the, the edges yeah, of my just, ears. Yeah, just work on that. You look, you look, you're almost, you're almost getting it. You almost got a, like an Orthodox, Orthodox rabbi look going. Um, then we got Christian, Christian Slater, Sarah. Sarah, we can just talk about him now because I'm, I'd be angry about the entire subplot involving him as we come along later on. Um, how do you feel about Christian Slater? Like when you were watching him today, were you like... Well, no. No, I hate Christian Slater. Every time I see Christian Slater, I hate Christian Slater more. But do you not do you not think? And do I you don't think he's like. I don't even know why. Is he not? Is he not like super handsome to you? No. I, Sarah, are you you must be you must be the woman who doesn't find Christian Slater adorable. I just Heather's ruins him for me. Christian Slater. Really? I don't find him attractive at all. I just find him so unpleasant that, like, maybe I could see why somebody found him attractive, but I just find him always so unpleasant that it completely ruins the effect. Yeah. What about in, like, Interview with the Vampire? I have not seen Interview with the Vampire in 10 years and did not remember he was in it. So I'll get back to you. We should talk about Interview with the Vampire. We should. Uh, anyway, Christian Slater's in it. He's playing Will Scarlet. It's a character that I hate him. is obviously one of Robin's Merry Men. I uh, bet you didn't know he was Robin's legitimate brother, but apparently he is, because that's a plot point we need to have. 
Yeah, in a subplot that adds 25 minutes to the movie, that is completely unnecessary. Completely unnecessary because it doesn't put them in any more danger than it does because he yeah. he goes from supporting Robin to betraying Robin to being back on Robin's side. You're like, thanks. Yeah, he could do all that without being his illegitimate half-brother. He could also not do that. Like, I mean, if you're going to... Yeah, I mean, if he if he wasn't in the movie... I actually don't think it would matter. I don't, I, honestly, I don't think it would. I think it's like, literally, mm. you're not in the movie, fair enough, we're done. The person we do need in this movie is Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham, who gives a fantastic performance in a completely different movie. Yeah, it's a good job that Alan Rickman was uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham, and there's a giant forest there, because he chews so much of the scenery in this movie that he might as well be fucking building a dam like a beaver because this guy is gnawing on anything that gets in a scene with him. It is, like, don't get me wrong, it's one of those great performances and I don't want to laugh it off and I don't want to sound like I'm coming down on him, especially since, you know, God bless him and he's, he's passed on. But he is snaping it up in a movie where nobody else is snaping it up. Right, it's that it's he's great, but it seems like he was told to do something completely different by the director than what everyone else was told to be doing. Like, he just doesn't think he's in the same movie as these people. As you said earlier, sometimes it's hard to remember that he's in this version of the movie and not Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Right, yeah. because he seems like he's a comedic villain. Yeah, because of the way the way it's played. And it's like, cancel Prince Miles. Like, <laughs> right, okay, guys. I can't do an Alan Rickman impression unless it's <laughs> Porter. Someone will think you're up to something. Yes, exactly. Mm. <laughs> mm. Or like he's cheating on Emma Thompson and, you know, love actually. Um, right. Bastard. Okay. As Hans Gruber pretending to be an American for five seconds in Die Hard, he does in a better American accent than Kevin Costner does a British accent. He's like, oh, he's not trying, and he's holding still. the gun. And he's like, oh, what am I do? Oh God, you're one of them. <laughs> Fuck it. Alan Rickman. God bless Alan him. Alan Rickman is one of our true treasures. What a great actor. Just. And it just in this movie, like, oh my god. I mean, he literally could be. Is it Richard Lester plays him in in Men in Tights? I don't remember. It's somebody like that. And if you were to replace him, you I you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Um, right. Like, but he's he's good in his way. It's just a weird performance choice. Yeah, he's got a witch. Yeah, I don't understand where the witch comes from. <laughs> he has a witch. And it's because in Men in Tights, he's got a hag. Because Men in Tights is obviously taking the piss out of this. Um, right. It's just, like, hence the, oh, I've got a British accent. Right? It's just... <clears throat> anyway, he's he's good. Just, it's a weird performance. Um, and then Brian Blessed as Lord Loxie, that's... Um, Kevin Costner's dad because Kevin Costner clearly can't do anything British related so they had to get the most British man of all time <laughs> Brian Blessed to play his father oh, fuck, I fuck. do love that the more I think about it the less believable I find it that Brian Blessed could ever possibly be Kevin Costner's father he's boss Nass he's Augustus 
I don't care if he's Augustus. He's boss ass, Sarah. He's going along, going. Ciao, ciao. You're bad, man. And he, he's also a scenery chewer often, but he doesn't like have the opportunity really. In well, he just gets that bit where he gets to ride out and he's like, is it, is it for justice and King Richard? Yeah, but he has like five minutes of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, then We've also got Michael Wincott love him. as uh, Guy of Gisborne. Love him. Absolutely love him. No, nothing bad to say about him. And he's a classic bad guy. He's just so good at everything he does. Like I, I, yeah. I can see this guy as a bad guy in this movie. He's obviously Rochefort and Three Musketeers. He's the bad guy in The Crow. Right. It, it's like he's in Alien Resurrection. I was mentioning this to Sarah earlier. And he's playing mm, like a smuggler. Right. And you know, I, can pra- I can picture this guy as a space smuggler. Because when he opens his mouth, he's like, yeah. I'm a space smuggler. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, You've been you've been smoking a lot there, yeah. Smoke a lot, yeah. <laughs> it's like he's just I I can't do Michael I can't do any voices. But let's be honest, like like guys, you've been listening to this podcast enough, right? I cannot do any voices, but Michael Wincott just has this awesome voice, and the fact that he gets killed in the way he does in this movie, I think, is a detriment to the movie because at least for the first hour and a half, um, the Duke has somebody to. You know, at least fire the stuff off against, and then right, they play off each other really well. He's killed him because spoiler alert: it is Alan Rickman who stabs him. Um, then the last hour, it's just stabs him. nothing. Like there's no there's no secondary villain for Robin to defeat. Like, and that's the whole point of having right. a guy with Gisborne is to be there. It's the same reason that Rochefort exists in the Three Musketeers is you have to beat him before you get the Richelieu. And then that's sort of what they do. Like they've got like the witch as like a secondary villain that somebody else to fight, and same with the bishop that we got our priest fight. But like we, yeah, we it would have been nice to have that kind of like secondary boss kind of character. Yeah, for it's just it's just weird that they chose. Like I get why to do it. Let's make the sheriff extra evil. He just killed his own cousin. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's cousins back in. The medieval times. I mean, you might as well be a peasant. <laughs> Chances of getting stabbed did are we, very did high. Did we not believe in cousins? Did we not believe in cousins back in the Middle Ages? They just get killed, sir. This is my cuz. <laughs> Stab him. I mean, family members in general in medieval movies fare poorly. Like, you know, Robin's dad. It's like, oh, wait, there's Robin's dad. How long is it going to take for him to die? Three seconds? Called it. Well, we should talk about this when we go through our... Enumeratio. Everyone's missed that. I have actually had my school choir record this. This is this is the funny thing about this, right? Is I've record, I've got the kids together. I got them in a room. It's like, all right, kids, you're going to say a couple of words now, and you're just going to sing them as a group. Like this is like forty kids, and they're a good choir, and they sang them for me, and I recorded them, and I have no idea where I put them. They're on a, they're somewhere on a memory stick, recorded in Umaradio, sung properly by kids who know how to sing. And yet, that would be lovely. I also just forget to do it every single time. I'm like, going, where did I put it? And and the weird thing about it is, I can tell you exactly what the memory stick looks like because as a teacher, right, I go through a crap ton of memory sticks. Like Sarah, you know, like you're probably doing the exact same thing. And this is back in the days before I was using Google Drive all the time. 
but uh, it's on the memory stick that says climate change ambassador on it because you know in my spare time I care about the environment and I was a climate change ambassador and I'm not sure where I put that memory stick and I'm looking around my kitchen now like so Sarah is watching me as I'm looking at the presses in my kitchen because that is literally where I could have put it it could be up there with the rice for all I know could be could be anywhere maybe it's in some maybe it's just in the rice there's a good chance it's right like beside that bottle of, of whiskey over there maybe I should go drink the bottle to see mm. what's behind it anyway after this week we all need more to drink Enumeratio, Sarah let's start the recap on this we're in Jerusalem in 1194, where Robin of Loxley is in prison after having gone on the Third Crusade with Richard the Lionheart. Why did I write Richard of Lionheart? What am I doing in my notes? He's been there for five years, and he's got this friend, Peter, and he's sort of trying to say, he basically, like, Peter's hand is going to get cut off, and he says, no, you can cut my hand off instead, and then he fights back, and they have a very daring escape attempt. It is a, a very, very daring escape attempt. Um, where he volunteers to get his hand cut off and then Azim, played by um, Morgan Freeman, helps him and then they stop to eat some melons. I, oh, that, I, that's where the melons are. Yeah, at the very beginning. They stop to break <laughs> open a couple of... Because you texted me and you were like, a melon break. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I watched this like two whole days ago. They find a bunch of melons and uh, there's just this hilarious scene to me of Robin running off holding like three melons. <laughs> and then while they're eating melons i guess peter dies yeah it's just it's just after peter dies and he gives him the ring okay. and then they stop for a melon break and it's the point where azim tells him you saved my life now my life belongs to you i owe you a life that that's the scene with the melons they're holding melons and right. eating melons at that point there what a random choice like of all the things to have just don't, and like they're they're digging into the flesh of the melon with their fingers and you're like They've been in prison for like five years. When do you think they last got to eat a melon? Sarah, it's still not the first thing that's going to pop into my head. Yeah, I better make sure I get my fruit requirements. They probably have scurvy. It's a good chance to do have scurvy. Bunch of bloody sailors. So Azim owes him this life debt and Peter is dead and Peter gives him a ring that he tells him to go and give to his sister, Marion, when they get back to England. We then go to England briefly where we see Robin's father who is writing to say he is, you know, worried about his kid because he's been gone for like five years and then gets lured into a trap where I guess Nottingham is running like the KKK? It's so... Question mark? It's so random. Like, like why are they in white hoods? Of all the things, we're, we're in pristine white cloaks. Do they come it's back weird. at any stage in the rest of the movie? You better ask nope. they don't. But, you know, it's fine. That's trendy these days because we just had a white supremacist coup in the United States yesterday, so. Or attempted white supremacist coup. Attempted white supremacist coup. But this was the day, we're recording this the day after the attempted supremacist coup. So, sorry, sorry, guys. We're recording this the day after the first attempted white supremacist coup. Just the first one. Right. By the, by the time their episode comes out, there might have been another one. Yeah. You know. You know the will. America. You know the will, Sarah. Your, your country is, is doing fine. Um, so then we cut to... He gets killed. Brian Blessed is playing Robin's dad. And he goes out and he's like, Oh, I'm never going to agree with you, Duke of Nottingham. Also, thank you for showing me your... Why do they show up with masks, Sarah? I don't know. 
know. I don't know why they're wearing white robes and masks. Literally, I don't know what is behind this choice. Literally, the first thing he does is he puts his hand up and takes off his mask to reveal it's the Duke. Yeah. Oh, oh, the sheriff. Sorry. Um. What? Why? 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 Why all the secrecy? Him. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is, except to make them look like the KKK, and I don't understand what the rationale behind that choice is. Because it's a, so weird. Because there's a black guy in this movie, Sarah. Yeah, there's some weird race stuff that we're going to talk about. So four months later, Robin and Azim arrive in England, and Robin, bless his heart, is like, we'll be celebrating with my father by nightfall. And it's like, oh, honey, no. Yeah. Um, it's a weird one. Also, a, the, the bit where they get off the boat... And then Robin is talking to Azim. And does Robin orchestrate the attack on Azim? Because they're having this conversation and Robin's like, you don't really owe me a life debt. It's all bullshit. Don't worry about it. And then right. the French guy attacks him. And we know he's French because Azim throws a little shade his way about stinking of garlic. Right? Um, right. But he attacks him and Azim knocks him over and then the conversation goes back to nobody is going to decide my fate but me Robin of Loxley right and I was there thinking yeah is, so did Robin plan that and was like you attack him and then it looks like you're saving my life Azim so you get to go your own way maybe don't do that when you land in England Robin yeah maybe you do that four months ago before you leave before you leave like uh, I need to get rid of this life debt that this guy's got to me let's wait until we're in a country where he would probably based on the movie, be the only black guy in the country, and then then I'll set you free from your life debt. Right, it's like, well, you saved my life. I'm not even going to give you dinner now. He probably came home via Morocco. Like, let, let him away there from his life debt. It's weird, yeah. But, yeah, so, yes, I wasn't quite sure what was going on with that. But, yeah, but maybe that was a kind of orchestrated effort. And then also, Robin just aggressively bullies him into giving the details of how he ended up in prison, which I guess he didn't do four months ago because, I don't know. And, uh, but it turns out that he was in prison for having had an affair with a married woman whose name is Yasmina, and this never matters again. It doesn't matter at all. Uh, basically, he had an affair because he's a painted old devil, in the words of Robin Loxley, our hero. Um, because, you know, Jesus. he's a black man, so therefore he's painted. Um, and as I said... Yeah, they keep saying that, and it is a whole lot. <laughs> it is weird. Um, so, Robin did this, but I just want to point out that this is also kind of the starting plot to the much... Uh, Vaunt the superior film, The Thirteenth Warrior, where uh, Eben is yeah. sent away because of uh, his inability to keep his dick out of a married woman. Um, let's just say her name was also Jasmina. I mean, because why is that this thing that they just introduce out of nowhere for no reason, except to be like women? They're sex objects that like get men in trouble. Oh well, women suck, right? Yeah, it's true, Sarah. Like, I mean, I do have this beard on my neck, so. I can't disagree with you. So you do hate women now? <laughs> not all women. Hashtag not all women. <laughs> no. Uh, Hashtag yes, all men. Yeah, all men. Yeah, <laughs> fuck those guns. <laughs> um, so they're walking along this amazing wall, uh, which appears to just constantly go up and down hills. I I don't know where it is, but I want to go visit because it looks gorgeous, right? It's meant to be down near like the, the White Cliffs of Dover, but it looks like a genuinely awesome set. Um, 
and they come across this kid who's getting chased by some Irish wolfhounds, which, by the way, are lovely dogs, and they wouldn't be chasing no kid. Maybe to give him a good lick. Yeah, we... Yeah, there is, like, slander in this movie at how viciously these Irish wolfhounds are presented. Irish wolfhounds are the sweetest dogs in the world, especially with children. There are photos of me with my Irish wolfhound growing up where she is, like, eight times my size, and she would never have heard a fly. And this movie is... Unless you're a wolf... Which case you're fucked. Yeah, but he's not a wolf. He's a nice little boy, and they would give him a big lick, a bunch well, of big licks. Well, maybe they'd knock him over a little bit. Strange, but they'd be, strangely they'd be enough, him. his nickname is Wolf. That's true. His nickname is Wolf, or the uh, yeah, which is also a choice of like, okay, that's a weird like Anglo that like early like old English name that we're like putting in the twelfth. That's right, Wolf. The Wolfhounds are being led by Guy de Gisborne, played by um. Michael Wincott and a bunch of his soldiers and then Robin shows up and he's like oh this is actually my land bitches uh, you can't go hunting this boy I see he's allowed to eat the deer blah blah blah, blah. then Gita Gisborne's like oh t- good job you're home Robin and then tells his men to attack them at which point Robin kills four of them I think gets Guy on the yeah. ground puts a sword up to his throat and then chooses not to kill him yeah, he's like, go tell the sheriff of Nottingham who sent you or whatever. But just there's no, there's literally no reason for it. Like, I, I get it. D- don't show, I mean, he's he's showing mercy. He shoots a guy in the face. Right, he kills another four people. Yeah, like, it's, it's, he's literally just after murdering these dudes. It's not like he's showing any respect. It's just because this one happens to be Guy de Gisborne. You know, the guy right. who's ordering them to kill him. But it's okay to kill the guys who were ordered to kill you, but not the guy who ordered it, apparently. So, I don't know. Um, right. At which point he throws some shade at Azim's way for, you know, uh, uh, at one of those points in the movies where we have to remember this guy's Muslim because he had to get down to pray at the certain points during the day. He had to find which way Mecca was. Right. And he's like, how the fuck do you know which way is east? There's no goddamn sun here, which is a fair complaint. That is a fair complaint. But then Robin knows because... He knows this place like the back of his hand. Yes, and so he's praying and so he doesn't get to fulfill his life debt because he's in the middle of that. Guy goes back to the sheriff of Nottingham and complains that he met a hooded man, to which I'm like, wait, did he even have a hood on? He took it off pretty quick if he did. And also, isn't the important thing that it's like this guy who like owns the land? And isn't that what we should be talking about? I mean, I know it's because he's Robin Hood, but it's like, it just seems like such a like weird little like, everybody, it's Robin Hood. But he has his name. He's like, I, we, we met a hooded man. He took down me and six of our men. Uh, his name is Robin of, it was Robin of Loxley. And then the sheriff goes, Robin of Loxley, he's nothing but an untrained whelp. Right, just say Robin of Loxley's back, and that's the end of the conversation. Like, why is there all this weird lead up? Again, this movie could be one hour shorter. Yeah, it's it's. Just, I think it's just so we can get more of uh, the sheriff of Nottingham. I think it's. It, I think what they were lining yeah. up was that the sheriff is meant to be. I think he's meant to be a hard ass, like, like right. honestly, because the way he responds of. He's an untrained whelp. He'll, he'll pose no problems, right? As if he's like a hard ass, mm-hmm. like a badass dude, right? And then later on, there's a bit where he's holding a sword. And he's like uh, Spanish steel, stronger than our our native weapons, or whatever. And he's like swinging it around. Like he's doing a bit of little hand movements with his swords and stuff. And I'm thinking, okay, so ideally, 
that's what they're lining up here is he's a dangerous man right so yeah he could be a ballast it's just and that's where i think the problem with the performance comes in is that it's played so arch and so over the top that i can't like i don't see him beating robin of loxley in a fight it and that's kind of happening here, right? Is that he is actually, like, he's pretty good in a fight. Like, he comes close to winning in the end. But, yeah, but he also has this, like, weird, like, comedic vibe. Yeah, it's very much like we can't decide if we want him to be genuinely badass or, like, a comedy villain. So Robin arrives at his father's castle where uh, he finds that it is in ruins and also that his father's rotting corpse is hanging from a tower, which is a whole lot after four months. See, that's another but, thing know. I was thinking. Like, that, it's meant to have been four months. The castle looked like it's been in ruin for 200 years because it probably has been in ruin for 200 years. Um, and the dad is rotted away. And you think, was it not contemporary that when Robin was breaking out that that was happening? And if it did mean if to have happened four or five years before show that it happened at the very beginning of the crusade. So as soon as Rodin was out of the picture, this happened and not... Yeah, no, the implication is definitely that it happened, that that also happened four months ago. So there's no way the thing should have been destroyed. It's like when we watched um, we watched the other Robin Hood, which has a similar story, um, which, well, I mean, the Robin Hood story should have this, is he comes back and his castle is in disrepair, but it was burned. It was raised to the ground. That's right. That's the point. And there's only a few things left which didn't get damaged in the fire or whatever. Like, it's weird for me to be saying that it makes more sense in that other movie, which is a steaming pile of crap. Right. Well, but that here they just picked some ruins to film it in. Yes, that's exactly which, it. Which, you know. Uh, but they do find his father's blind servant, Duncan, who I guess has just been, like, hanging out there in this ruined castle for four months. And he tells them what happens, and Robin swears a blood oath to avenge his father. Okay, and so he puts on this medallion. Is that his father's medallion? Uh, what is the deal with the medallion? I think it's his father's medallion. It's the father's... Okay. It's, I, I'm assuming it's the symbol of Loxley. Okay. Well, I mean, it's just, a, it's just a cross, so that doesn't actually make sense, yeah. but whatever. It's his father's medallion. So Nottingham's got a witch, apparently, uh, who... Okay, she's got this egg, and she cracks the egg onto a plate, and the egg has, like, this weird, like, congealed blood that comes out of it, and then she, like, throws some runestones on it and predicts their death. And then she sees one, which is a picture of a cross with an X underneath it, or, like, a skull of crossbones with an X, and you're like, oh, I wonder what that is. And she freaks out. She's like, ah, the painted man. Yes. The painted man is a phrasing that will keep coming up. Where does she get the painted man from the rest of the runes? That's a very good question. But I, I, I'm not an expert in the reading of runes uh, in that particular art. So I, I, don't, I don't know. <sighs> but uh, This is a, sometimes we're just doing this podcast and you let me down. I'm just saying. Just... <laughs> They go to Marianne's and Robin starts where he's like, we'll find food and shelter there to which I'm just definitely like, yeah, I mean, no, you're, you're over one on this, buddy. Like I, why, why would anybody trust you and your opinions about this at this point? So they're, they're not super happy to see him there. I, uh, I hate this scene. <laughs> I also hate this scene. 
Okay, so they let him in, but only very begrudgingly, and he has to leave his weapons outside, and Azim and Duncan have to stay outside. Uh, I do like Azim's one line where he does it, where he goes, the hospitality in this country is as warm as the weather, and then pauses, and then is like, it's a joke. <laughs> I did like that. Uh, I didn't love how then Duncan is like a big old racist who like bitches that like Moors and Saracens, as he puts it, is, are the ones really at fault for the crusade. Obviously, you know, never minding the fact that you could have like left them the fuck alone in the first place. And uh, that, and then he's like, huh, what kind of name is Azim? Irish? Cornish? Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it. Uh, you've had Mabel on a few times. I mean, she sounds like somebody who could be named Azim. You also seem like somebody who could be named Azim. It's a good, a good Irish it's name. It's my right? middle name, Oliver Azim Brady. Mm-hmm. People don't realize this. It's just it's very, <laughs> it's very common over here the name Azim. Mm. And then he says Moorish, and he goes, mm. <laughs> "Poor old Duncan. I mean, if only we could talk about how he's blind some more." Oh, we will. We will. <laughs> so. Initially, we see this person who I'll just, you know, give it away. turns out to be Marion's servant, Sarah. And she's the one who initially, you know, pops up and she says, I'm Marion. And Robin says something like, the years have been kind to you while giving her this look that's like, clearly you're not as hot as I thought you were going to be. And the whole thing is essentially, it feels like a joke about the fact that this woman is not as conventional conventionally attractive as one would expect Marion to be watching this movie hey this girl is chunky she can't be made Marion. oh somebody attacks robin from behind robin who has no weapon defeats this person because it's meant I, i'm assuming it's meant to be like a girl power um women are doing it for themselves guys she's keeping things up but robin literally beats her with no weapon when she has a sword on him right. and a dagger on him and the only reason she gets to kick him in the nuts is because Azim breaks through the door which by the yeah. way it's a pretty shit door if one old man and one moor manage to just knock it in with a couple of runs knock it all like, the way yeah it's like okay yeah and uh, it's it's very much this like girl power like she can fight but like actually she's not very good at it and also in all of the future scenes where her being able to fight would be useful we will never see the fact that she can fight again so like it's just this weird like look at us we're going to pretend that the women have agency for like 30 seconds of this character existing and then we will never speak of it again as she becomes a damsel in distress yeah that's that's literally what happens this this movie and this is where the extra length comes in is introduce Marion. I get it. It's Robin Hood. You want to put Marion in the thing. That's right. fine. That's grand. It makes sense. At least in the Kate Blanchett version of it, she's not just a milksop. Like, and I don't mean that. It sounds like I'm being right. terrible, but like her entire character here is to be carted off and be the damsel. And it, yeah. it's un, it, it, it doesn't need to be here. And because of this, because of the courting scenes we see later on, we also end up with like what is there 25 extra minutes in the movie because we have to see her seeing robin interact with kids we have to see her seeing robin right. with his gold but he's i'm giving it back to the poor like we get it right like we don't we don't need to notice that they fall in love there are so many other movies where 
the handsome hero and the maiden fall in love with two looks and one conversation like we don't like i don't need this entire long extra scene put into the middle of the movie showing them not really be warm and cozy with each other like i don't think there's any right sexual tension between them at any point in the movie Oh, I mean, it's also like that the actors have zero chemistry, but it's this weird thing too that like there's all of these like falling in love scenes and they add to her screen time, which, you know, fine, but they don't actually add anything to anything that we know about her character. It's just essentially like using her then as a reflection for like, no, look how good Robin is that he can like win over a lady, I guess. Yeah, it's it's so crazy. I like, hate it's... it. I, I, it's mad to me that any of that's like it just doesn't seem to work and as you said as you've written in the notes here it's a bit where she's like you can't replace my brother that's not what Robin's angling for here not the goal buddy also okay I have to talk about Marion's scarf because Marion is wearing what looks absolutely like okay so you know how on like street corners in European cities they have those like pashmina scarves right mm-hmm, and they've got mm-hmm. like 75 of them in there in all different colors and they all cost like 5 euros or 5 pounds she is wearing one of those scarves and no shade. I have many of those scarves, but they don't really seem quite right in the 12th century with a medieval dress. Yeah. It is a really nice pashmina she's wearing, but yeah, it's, it does look like, it's a great scarf. It does look like something that shouldn't be existing on an English noble woman in, you know, 1191 or wherever it's meant to be set. Right. She uh, indicates that she's not like other girls because she doesn't like life at court. And she doesn't want to do that. And also, she talks about how Robin, as a child, was a spoiled bully who used to burn her hair, which I feel like is creepy and sadistic as fuck, and, like, did not need to be there as a detail that makes me like him 5,000 times less. Sincera. Uh, sometimes you just need to break girl down, you know? Um sometimes you need by to by setting fire to her set hair set fire to her hair make nasty comments about her appearance like this I mean is, that's what boys do to show the girls that they like them is, in a trope which is do, terrible lady. like it's it's how it's oh, going to work is my hat turning yeah, into a MAGA it's, hat <laughs> it's going a little fedora shape no I'm filling in <laughs> Yeah, so these, it's just a weird relationship, and they add in all of these details which don't improve it, and also they have no chemistry. Zero, zero chemistry. And I just realized something, Sarah, right? So I'm looking at the recording time. So for those of you who are listening, it's probably around about 42 minutes into the podcast, right? Which means we've been talking about 42 minutes. We're just about to come up to maybe the 20-minute mark of the movie, right? (laughs) Now... Obviously, myself and Sarah like to talk crap, and we were talking about the cast and all this stuff beforehand, right? But the beginning of the movie is interesting. This stuff is interesting, yeah. right? Which is why this first opening 20 minutes of the movie and the last 35 minutes to 40 minutes of the movie, interesting, enjoyable. I like talking about that stuff. There's an hour and 20 minutes in the middle, starting from around about the next scene so the next scene is meeting little john yeah. right pretty much from then on to around about the time where Guy of gisborne gets killed almost everything is waffle. actually wait eh. it's even beyond Guy of gisborne yeah. getting killed it's around about the point 
where Marion gets It's kidnapped. like when they come back and do the rest. Right, yeah. yeah. When, when Scarlet comes back. That's the end. Like, yeah. No when they of, do the like big, the bakeable rescue. Yes. You, that could all have been done in a montage of robbing from the rich, giving to the poor. Yeah. But No, instead, it's an hour and a half that could have been 15 minutes. That's my main yeah. problem with the movie because it's a, this is a movie I genuinely enjoy. I I would almost go and say it's one of my favorite movies. If I'm into it, like if I want to sit down and throw on a comfort movie, I will sit down and throw on this movie. But my God, there is so much after the introduction of Little John to the end, which is just why? Yeah, but anyway, again, this does not need to be a two and a half hour movie. So Azim sees the approach of the sheriff's men through a telescope, as I will discuss later, which Robin finds incredibly confusing. So he's like looking through the telescope, but he like takes out his sword and like almost like falls off the fucking battlements, like trying to stab a person who's like, I don't know, 30 feet away or whatever it's supposed to be. Yeah, it is so random. He's like, I've never seen one of these before. Okay, we get it. But you also don't think that the people have suddenly appeared in front of you. like Right. Yeah. It's like you you know that you're on a tower and that they're on the ground. Like, you know they're not in the sky, at least. Like, they're high up on a tower. Yeah. Like, there's just there's weird stuff like that. But, I mean, it's it's the equivalent of, like, I, I take microscopes around. So, I, I teach in secondary school. So, I, I teach usually the, the senior kids. So, I'm teaching physics and chemistry. I'm not... I'm not teaching baby science a lot. But Irish schools finish, my school finishes like a month before the primary schools do. So what I like to do is go around to visit primary schools and just do some science with the kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like I said, here's a science teacher coming in doing some science stuff. So I bring a microscope. I don't show a microscope to six-year-old kids who then suddenly start reaching in to try and touch the slide. Do you know what I mean? Right. Oh, 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 I'm touching it. I can see the thing. It's like... They're not stupid. And it's just this very annoying, like, medieval people are dumb. It's like, yeah, 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 we get it. (sighs) So, yeah, they're kind of... So, okay, so at that point, they're like, oh, I guess we should, like, deal with this. Uh, Robin confesses that they're looking for him because he killed some of the sheriff's men, to which Marion responds with the understatement of the goddamn century of, oh, dear. But before they run away, is it just me, or did Robin kind of, like, grab her ass a bit? Uh, And she's like (gasps) He's already been talking to her for like 10 minutes Sarah. He needs to get what he earned (laughs) She owed him But I was like I could swear it Did I see that or did I make that Like I could swear that happened But I didn't want to rewind Because I was like there's still like 95 minutes of this movie He does definitely do like a a pulling motion of her Yeah Yeah yeah, it's a little like oh, okay, you you don't need to do that. You can you can do that without. You can say you want to protect her without touching her. Hmm. So they do get away. They take the they take some horses. Uh, Nottingham shows up. Yeah, she says to Gisborne, uh, "They stole the horses," and he's like, "Lucky he didn't steal your virtue as well." Because that's my yeah. Michael Wincon impression. Because you know exactly uh, that's what that's what all men think about all the time. Hashtag yes, all men. Robin and company go into Sherwood Forest to hide, and uh, uh, they meet up with the whole Sherwood Forest crew, including Christian Slater, who sucks. Wolf is there. And I think that Wolf is also kind of the worst, because Robin's there, and he at no point is he like, 
oh yeah, this dude saves my saved my life. Maybe you should like not be a giant asshole to him. Yeah, he like he's like, oh, this guy's really careful, Dad. This guy's good with a good at fighting. He beat twelve men. He's like, yeah, but that's great. So you're bigging up the story, but also maybe say he. This is the one who saved my life earlier. Right. So that you know maybe then they'd like feel. I don't know, grateful and like this uh, anyway, but so you, but you know, you have to have the whole fight scene between him and little John because uh, toxic masculinity, you can't be friends until you've beat each other up and kicked each other in the nuts. Sarah, it is 100% true. I can't be bros with a dude until we've had a, a face smashing incident. And then once we've done that, we're bros. Yeah, just have to kick each other in the nuts at least one time. 100%. Uh, so now everybody's friends, uh, with the exception that everybody's still real racist. So they're passing around Mead and they won't give any to Azim. And then uh, Robin's like, dude, the fuck. And then Azim's like, I won't drink it anyway because Allah says, says no. Um, and Robin like kind of like rolls his eyes, which I'm like, it, it's, it's his religion. Leave him the fuck alone. Yeah. Uh, also with Mead, uh, which as we know... <laughs> It's honey. Sorry, that's just a 13th Warrior reference. Yeah, so you know from the 13th Warrior, me doesn't count. But uh, but I, I did I did say that that was kind of bullshit. <laughs> 13th Warrior, uh, as as much as, as enjoyable as that movie is, the like me loophole is not a thing. <laughs> it would be sweet if it was. <laughs> Except that me is also ass. Nobody yeah, me is disgusting. disgusting. That would be a terrible loophole. Who Nobody wants that. Robin goes to church and he flirts with Marion and she tells him to take a bath because he smells. Uh, Robin confronts the bishop, ends up fighting with the sheriff for a bit. Uh, and this is where we do get Alan Rickman's best line, which is that he yells, I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon, which describes approximately my feelings today about Ted Cruz. Yeah. Uh, and then Wincott, um, Gilly Gosman asks him, why a spoon? He's like, because it's dull, you twit. It'll hurt more. Weasley, um, I, I can't even do a Snape impression now. But yeah, it's good. It's just it's dull, you twit. It'll hurt more. Yeah, actually, that's a very good version of it. But that's the point: is he's having like a statue made at this point, um, like a bust of himself, of himself. made that later somebody puts in, like the cut that Robin puts on his face. You're like, this is all. It's two different movies. The the guy can't yeah. be scary and talk about cutting your heart out with a spoon while also being vainglorious and getting his face turned into like statues and stuff like. And also at the same time, Robin takes everything so seriously. Like Kevin Costner is playing this role extremely straight. Right? And like there's nothing comedic about and Alan Rickman yeah. is the bad guy in an action comedy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like, Kevin Costner thinks he's, like, still on fucking Dances with Wolves. Like, except, you know, well, I guess actually he is still a white savior. So. That's true. I guess that's just Kevin Costner. Sarah's, uh, right, Sarah's Sarah? cat is attacking her right now. <laughs> she, uh, she's, she's very, she's, she's difficult this week. She's old. You leave her alone. Yeah, she's 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 eighteen years old. Yeah, older than my stu- older than some of my students. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, are you older than my students? Good kitty. 
the sheriff like wrecks a whole village because he thinks that they're helping Robin Hood. So everybody goes to the woods and uh, Robin gives a nice inspiring speech and talks them into uh, like all fighting with him and banding together. We've got this whole montage of like everybody's training and everybody's making weapons. Where are they getting the tools and raw materials from which to make swords? Oh, they're stealing them. Um, In the woods. So they're stealing them when they steal from the rich and give to the poor. Are the rich carrying an entire set of blacksmith's tools? Are the rich carrying a forge? Uh, Yeah, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Also, how easily he turns people around. They all want to kill him. They're all mad at him. Will Scarlet takes out a knife to attack him from behind. Robin shoots him in the hand. And then people are like... Well, you shot Will Scarlet in the hand. I think that... Yeah, I mean, and that sort of works because I feel like part of it is that Will Scarlet loses goodwill by having a tap from behind. Yeah, but also the fact that nobody likes Will Scarlet in the first place. Oh, yeah, he sucks. Uh, So uh, Nottingham is, of course, very upset. He's raising the bounty up to a thousand gold and then decides that the way to do this and the way to actually get rid of Robin is to oppress the people more and with the gold that they'll then blame him for it, which doesn't make any sense. And this is another scene where it's just, it's so comedic. And so he's like, get rid of all the alms for the lepers and the orphans, cancel the merciful beheadings and call off Christmas. And it's like, it's a funny line and it's well delivered, but it's not in the same movie as any other scene in this movie. It's so randomly rushed. For a movie which doesn't rush anything else, they rush to him being the leader of the Merry Men, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get you. Let's make sense. But then they're stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Eventually they rob uh, Friar Tuck and Guy de Gisborne, who are traveling together for some undisclosed reason. Um, and they steal which apparently looks like a lot of money to me and then they realise mm-hmm. well this money must be going towards something so it turns out that they're building an army to kill Richard the Lionheart when he comes back from the Crusades yes they also of course steal a lot of beer and get Friar Tuck to join them yes. so uh, Friar Tuck, Tuck who now. in this one is as always representing as a Franciscan monk um, way before Franciscans which existed but also doesn't love bees and i miss that it's sad where is his love of bees he should, but yeah he and it's, i think bees. like the date i i think the date is such that i think like the franciscan order maybe existed but they're not in england mm. if i'm remembering correctly of my exact my exact dates but it's certainly well too early for the franciscans to be in england yeah, but he needs to have the bees um, in my family like we need that scene that's how we know. Instead, just the beer is his family. Like, that's actually what we have instead, is Friar Tuck in this is just, like, a high-functioning alcoholic. Yeah, I don't even think he's that high-functioning. He's just a bloated <laughs> Like, racist. all he talks about... Yeah, like, all he talks about is how he wants to drink and how he hates Muslims. Yeah. Oh, no, okay, this actually does... Uh, yeah, the Franciscans also, yes, by the way, the Franciscans are, uh, yeah, 1209. So, like, we are well too early in 1194 for this to be the Franciscans. Yeah. St. Francis is, like, allows is like 12 years old when this movie takes place. Exactly. Uh, now, this is the point where, to me, the movie falls apart because this is where Guy gets killed by the sheriff because he comes back and he's like oh we got attacked and our stuff was taken from us and the sheriff stabs him and goes well at least I didn't use a spoon it's good steel 
Because, you know, he's talking... Well, at least I didn't use a spoon. It's good steel. Yeah, that's exactly the way he says it. But also he says it in, like, a really flamboyant way, too. He's like... <laughs> he's one step away from twirling his mustache. At least I didn't mustache. use a spoon. Yeah. He's twirling his goatee. Um, so Marion and her maid Sarah are in the woods. They foil a robbery by Robin's band. They're taking to see him. She ogles him naked and he basically shows off how cool he is for a while. And then, uh, she and Azim like deliver little John's wife's baby for some reason. It's because we need to show that Azim isn't bad. Like everyone thinks Muslims are bad, but this guy... He can do that thing which all movies like the show is that all people who are Muslims are also exceptional doctors. Right. And it's like this, you know, not that there weren't like people who are polymaths and who have a multiplicity of skills, but like this guy, there's no reason to think that he's like a scientist, like, and would know how to deliver a baby. Uh, But that is the only thing that you can be a real doctor if you've done is to deliver a baby. So thank you, Ben Shapiro. Uh, I guess I'm not a real doctor. Of course. Uh, Now, one of the other things that um, I think it's with this is, I always make jokes about um, Attack of the Clones because it's a movie that people can make jokes about. It's terrible. In Attack of the Clones, there's the well-thrown... or, or well-trodden part of making jokes about the fact that um, Padme has no interest in uh, boning down with him until he kills all of the sand people. And he's like, I killed men, women, right. and children. Blah, 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 right? Uh, in this movie, Marion has little or no interest in Robin. Like, he, she's there. There's a little bit of flirtation that's going on. But it's not exactly, you know, like, they're hot for each other. Until they have their private conversation up surrounded by gold where he talks about how his dad fucked the peasant girl and he never forgave him as a kid and that was the last thing that he said to his dad was angry words about how he was betraying his mother. And that's when the movie decides to cut to Marion's face and it's definitely, that's the moment where she's like, I love this man. Like that's, that is the moment in the movie. It's the exact same as in Attack of the Clones where they cut to Padma's face. He's like, I have so much concern for this man. His soul must be broken after that horrible thing he did. She's looking at him and like, oh, your dad fucked the peasant girl. <laughs> well, it's because the bar for men's emotional and like emotional vulnerability, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, is like on the goddamn floor. Like the fact that he like referred to having once had a feeling is like, <gasps> That's That is pretty much what it is. You were once angry and sad because your dad slept with a peasant girl and then you made him give her up for you it's like oh. also it's like it's after your mom has died like don't be an asshole like what a shitty kid that like your that like your mom dies and your dad like has a like, girlfriend for five damn minutes and you're like i won't love you anymore if you don't dump your girlfriend like fuck off also uh dad i'm so mad at you for having sex with this other woman i hate you i hate you so much that i'm going to go join the crusades yeah, that's that's basically how this thing is set up, and then it's also like, wait, so like, like, why didn't he then also just take up with this peasant lady again after his son takes off to the fucking crusade? It's like, okay, uh, I, I don't know. It's just it, look, this entire thing doesn't need to be happening. Like, there's a a training no, the soldiers montage. Um, one thing I do like about this is wait, it actually wait that timing. 
is weird because it does imply that right after that he went off to the Crusades. Yeah. But that doesn't make sense because when did Will Scarlet get conceived? Will Scarlet's like three years younger than he is. Yeah, so he says that <laughs> he was 12 when this argument happened, right? And then he still held the resentment. So I'm assuming Will Scarlet comes is, tw- is meant to be 12 years younger than he is, right? Okay. Which I can see because Robin Hood is clearly in his mid-30s and Christian Slater is meant to be in his early 20s. So, but then he spent another 18 years being a bitch about this thing that happened when he was 12. And then he's like, dad, I'm going to go off to the Crusades. I don't love you. And it's like, you were a 30 year old man. Stop being an asshole. Yeah. That's the problem is it's like the timeline doesn't like I was 12 and I would never forgive him for knocking up or no, he doesn't even know he knocked up because he doesn't know Will Scarlet's his brother at this no. point. Um, also, no. there's no reason for Will Scarlet to be his brother. No, it's dumb. It's very, very dumb. Um, But yes, we haven't even had that revealed yet. Uh, Also, I want to talk about Duncan. Because at this point, we start getting more of Duncan. But 90% of Duncan's dialogue is like lines about he is blind. So he's like talking to Marion and he's like, he's in love with you. I'm blind, but I still can see some stuff. And it's like, we get it. You're blind. Like, that doesn't have to be your only character trait, which in this movie it is, because God forbid, like, his only character trait is that he's blind. Azim's main character's trait is that he's, like, Muslim and black. And it's, like, all this, like, weird, like, we're going to pretend we have representation of, like, disabilities and of people of color, but they have no personalities beyond their disability or their race, ethnicity, religion. Yeah, it's... The the problem with the movie, as I see it, is... It's overly long, but the overly long parts are still focused on the three main characters. There's no time spent to flesh out the other characters beyond, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the trope is called. Is it mystical black man? Is that, is that the trope? Right, and that's, yeah. what, that's what Morgan Freeman, who spent his entire life playing mystical black men in movies. Right. And it's a shame because Morgan Freeman is an excellent actor who, because of the way Hollywood works, has been... The blind guy who, I can tell that you love him and he loves you, Marion. How? How can you tell that, Duncan? You haven't seen the boy for 10 years and... A, how can you tell that? And B... But A, okay, so A, how can you tell that? B, if he can... The fact that he's blind is irrelevant to that, and he doesn't need to comment on that in the line to, like, remind the people watching the movie that he's blind. Yeah. It's just, it's very ableist and weird. So Nottingham, on the suggestion of his witch that he has for some reason, hires a bunch of Celtic thugs to bolster his army. And Marion, meanwhile, basically, like, decides to send a letter to King Richard. She trusts the bishop, which is extremely dumb. The bishop, obviously, is not trustworthy. And uh, basically, his emissary goes with her maid, Sarah. The emissary very quickly hits Sarah on the head and, I guess, leaves her for dead in the woods since we never see her again or hear of her or, I guess, apparently care. Yeah, I assumed she was dead at that point. It's not done like she is dead, but she does not come back. So, yeah. No. Uh, and then I guess takes the letter to Nottingham, who's like, you've been betraying me and consorting with outlaws. Yeah, but uh, have you been betraying him? Like, she's... she's Wait, she's no- writing to the king! She's got nothing to him, it's not betraying England. you. She doesn't, she doesn't know who you are. She's loyal to King Richard the Lionheart. Yeah, who's her cousin, and also the king. And also, Sean Connery. 
And also Sean Connery. Surprise, Sean Connery. They, uh, meanwhile, they've had this big raid in Sherwood Forest, and uh, they bring back a whole bunch of people to the castle at Nottingham. And uh, Nottingham then tells Marion that he's going to kill all of them unless she marries him, in which case he will spare the women and children as a wedding gift, which she basically is put in the position that she has to agree to, where like 30 people are going to get killed. Yeah, it's one of those random magic weddings as well, from the sounds of it. Because he's in such a rush to get to the marriage and the hag stroke witch has been telling him that this is a good idea. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Like, yeah, like the waiter pushing it through and we're getting married, we're getting married, let's get up to get married. Like, this doesn't solve all your problems. King Richard Lionheart's not going right. to go back and go, hey, Marion, see you're married to the old uh, sheriff of Nottingham there. Good job. Well, the implication that they make at some point is that his plan, and this is also one of these frustrating things, right? Is that they always love in these movies to introduce these like weird plots to overthrow kings and put nobodies on the throne. Mm -hmm. And so the like theoretical is like, oh no, like he's going to use his marriage to Marion, who's the king's cousin, to overthrow Richard and become king. I'm watching this and I'm like, yeah, the king, that is like, the king has a a brother who is the person who does in fact become king after him. The king also has like sisters, which would have a better claim than their like they and their husbands would have a better claim than like his cousin and her husband. And it's also like, who are you and how did you go from like I'm an asshole who enjoys like taking some money from people in the from like peasants in the woods to I'm going to overthrow the king of England. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. It's just like unnecessarily high stakes. I'm going to be king now because Robin's away. I've got the Dukes backing me. It's like, who gives a shit about the Dukes? They're not actually going to back you. Also, the chances of that lasting are very, 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 very slim. Oh, yeah. And obviously he's marrying her to get into the royal side of the family or something or to get into nobility. But I'm sure any of those Dukes that you have that apparently supporting you marry one of their daughters right and it's also like we'll we'll get to it in a second but like the wedding itself is also like the consent part actually matters and would never stand up in an ecclesiastical court but you know so it's their wedding day they're about to hang everybody will scarlet meanwhile i guess basically said i'll betray robin i hate him and then he gets back and he's like no actually i am your brother and i believed in you even though i had every reason to hate you so like do you suck or do you not suck and then robin's like i guess we're friends yeah it's sure will scarlet whatever we just we don't even need the character like it's just no reason for him to be a brother there's no reason for him to do anything beyond just be one of the merry men like that's all you need will scarlet for yeah he's there he's meant to be the, the yeah. funny one like it's and it's this weird like they make him into this minor antagonist for no reason it adds nothing and it doesn't actually have stakes because he doesn't ultimately actually betray him because he comes around and isn't actually a traitor and so there's no impact or stakes to the fact that like he doesn't like robin hood and as I said, I feel like it actually would have been better if Will Scarlet had actually betrayed him. Right? Like, then yeah. at least there would be a point to the whole thing. But he never does. He really just, like, says he's going to and goes into the woods and then, like, doesn't. 
So, okay. So they're at the wedding day. Everybody's about to be hanged. Uh, they all show up to rescue people, including, uh, including I will say, I do like that little John's wife uh, says that she's going to join them, especially because it's one of her kids, Wolf, who's one of the people who's going to be hanged. And uh, little John's like, you can't be put in danger. And she's like, bitch, I gave birth to eight children. Don't talk to me about danger. And I find it funny because her name is Fanny. Which in America means butt, yes. but over here means front butt. It is also feels like a weird choice as a name for the twelfth century, but that's part yeah, of it course. is. That's what I'm saying. It's like what I, I can't imagine. Fanny was a common name back in eleven ninety four, whatever it said. Right. So uh, they're uh, they're fighting. They like little John like breaks the gallows with his brute strength, so people don't die. Azim like basically says like I'm not even English and I'm fighting, so y'all should fight, and therefore gets them all to join in revolt. There's also a question here about at what point Azim learned English. Yeah, he's, he's always known English, sir. He's never known English. He's a mystical. If he knew English, he learned mystical black man. That's true. It's because he's magic that he knows English. We've got Nottingham uh, drags Marion into the crypt with the bishop in order to rush the wedding. There's this weird thing where the witch is like, because of like, I don't know, magic or something, you have to fuck like right now. See, this is what I'm getting at. It's like the witch is the one who's (laughs) behind this wedding thing and the witch is behind it. Yeah. Get hammering, which means it's obviously some sort of mystical thing going on, but there's no line up at any point which explains... What's special about Marion Marion? And it's also weird because, again, it's this odd little subplot that we don't need, right? Because we could justify the forced marriage just by virtue of her royal blood and the fact that she has this connection to the king. That it would be like a marriage that would elevate If we're standing. going to go the full magic route about royal blood and royal blood and all this sort of stuff, like, have that in it completely like there's some sort of right that needs to be yeah continued. don't not just have like a witch in the background like i'm reading the runes the painted man's going to kill me we have to do it by the equinox right and that's again the problem is that you have all of these subplots that are underdeveloped to such an extent that they don't need to be there at all yeah and that in fact they kind of detract so they're doing this like forced marriage where literally like he puts his hand over her mouth and is like she consents and I'm like no this this is never going to stand up in an ecclesiastical court this marriage is going to get annulled but okay um and meanwhile Robin and Azim are trying to break through and like they're using a nice statue as a battering ram and I find this very upsetting um <laughs> Robin then breaks through a very nice window so they like they don't know it's a nice medieval statue it's just a statue to them that's true but it's a nice statue that like somebody worked hard on. It's true. Somebody did work hard on it. That's somebody's work of art. Um, so they're like ruining the statue to get into the room. Then Robin also ruins a perfectly nice window to get into the room. Using a catapult uh, to catapult himself through as well. is another thing that happens yeah. in this movie. Which... Oh yes, the catapult. And I'm like, I feel like that would not work. No, you're going to die. Yeah. Like, even if you hit where you're landing, you're going to, yes, at the very top of your apex, you're not going to be moving that fast vertically, but yeah, you're still going to have your horizontal speed, and if you hit that window, is it going to hurt? Shit going to hurt. 
did I make this up or do we actually have Christian Slater with like the movie's one F-bomb there too, uh, where he catapults him over and is like, fuck me, he cleared it. Yeah, something along those lines, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, Christian which I think Slater. is the only the only fuck in the movie. Yeah, because he's so cool. Yeah, we have more in so this cool. podcast than in the film. Um, they so any anyway, everybody's fighting. Uh, I actually think the best fight is the priest fight with uh, the bishop and Friar Tuck, uh, which ends with uh, the the Friar Tuck's basically like shoving gold at him and then like to like weigh him down as he pushes him out the window, which ends with thirty pieces of silver to pay the devil on your way to hell. I'm not cutting that out. <laughs> I, everybody, that wasn't cut out, right? So just remind Sarah she said that. So Robin eventually manages to kill Nottingham. Azim kills the witch. Uh, Robin and Marion basically like make out over Nottingham's corpse. Yeah, uh, th- this is the thing: is Nottingham shows himself to be almost a match for Robin in a sword fight, which is yeah, like yeah, he's good. I I can't take him serious based on the way his character's been portrayed for the entire movie. So I'm watching it going, this isn't going to be much of a fight. Whereas when Rochefort is fighting yeah. D'Artagnan in at the end of um, The Three Musketeers. I You legitimately think Rochefort's going to kick this kid's ass because Rochefort is good and scary and a good villain. Whereas, I'm not saying the Sheriff of Nottingham's not a good villain, but I don't, I don't take him as a threat. So then when he's suddenly a threat, you're like, wait, what? No, this comes out of nowhere. This is the guy who's like, cancel Christmas. <laughs> well, great. Because again, it's like the. And because again, it's like the director told Kevin Costner he's in one movie and he told Alan Rickman he's in a completely different movie. Yeah. And so, like, and then they come together in this fight and it's like, what? This could be like that. This is actually like a legit like fight. That story that uh, they always tell about Alan Rickman when he's recording Snape is that I talked to J.K. Rowling and she told me where the character is going to go, so I played him with knowledge that no one else had. Like I get it, Alan. Don't believe you. <laughs> don't don't believe that story at all. Because when I watch the Harry Potter movies, you're a dick in the first one and you're a dick in the last one. But on the other hand, that is how I would play him if I had the knowledge of the end, because Snape is, best case scenario, a stalker who is mad that a woman wouldn't fuck him after he called him a racial slur. Wait, hold on a second. The last time I was on, we talked about um, Harry Potter movies for most of the things. So let's not do (laughs) that. And let's get to the end where Robin and Marion are. Oh, wait, by the way, uh, the best kill in the movie to me is... uh, Azim kicking in the door and then throwing his scimitar through the air to impale the witch. Uh, yes, that was very good. It's a good kill. That's a good kill, guys. Yeah, it's a good kill. And there's also, there's a lot of drama with Robin killing uh, the sheriff because he ultimately does so with this dagger, which, like, it's a whole thing, like, the sheriff had given Marion that dagger. And, and Marion had given it to him, him and like, he stuck it in his And belt. he's like, ah! Oh. Yeah, and he's like, ah, oh, I gave you this. Is like clearly the look on his face, oh. <laughs> which is like bizarre because it's not like he actually like thought she was in love with him, and so the like hurt, <laughs> the like hurt feelings is like sort of bizarre. But I kind of like it. I don't know. No, I... I I still like him in this movie, even though even though it's a weird like set of performance choices. I still really like yeah, him. I still really like, I like this him more movie. than Kevin Costner is I, the problem. I think he's great. I think the movie's great. Yeah, I just think that 
he's in a different movie to everybody else. And sometimes sometimes you get that. Like, yeah. um, nobody else is in a comedy movie. Alan Rickman yeah. is given an over-the-top comedy one, performance. Yeah. And it's really good. His performance is really good because you take the scenes in isolation, like, ha, ah, this is great. But then, They're great. then the next scene is Robin having a fight in the river, which, by the way, is two feet deep. Like, he, this, he's sounding the river with a big stick. <laughs> and he's it's like, like, oh no, he drowned. He drowned in like a foot and a half of water. It's just two feet here. We could just literally walk across. We're horses. We can swim. Like, oh, anyway. Um, yeah, so really good. Just damn you, Nottingham, yeah. for being the wrong, mm-hmm. the wrong performance. And we end, they get married, and Richard shows up, surprised John Connery at the end uh, to say uh, that I object unless I can give away the bride. How's uh, my Sean Connery? That was that uh, was good. Uh, just give her a you. little love slap. Oh God! Uh, yeah, Sean Connery, everybody's favorite pervy dad mm-hmm. from <laughs> First Night. Oh, that's a bit sad. He's passed away. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Oh yeah, he has. Mm. Rest mm. in peace. Um. Yeah. Anyway, so he does that. They get married. Everybody is very happy. The end. Uh, Azim, I'm assuming, does no longer have a life debt to Robin. Um, yes, he uh, withheld, or uh, what's the word, fulfilled it by having killed the witch. Good. And uh, and he's not into Richard the Richard Lionheart. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's the only one. Everybody else is like, <gasps> and he's the only one who's kind of like given him some side eye. And I'm like, yeah, fair. But I, I, This dude like fucking invaded your country. He really does seem like he's, he's, um, he's like, oh, oh, look, it's it's Sean Connery. He's the way everyone else is responding. Um, and I think right. in Men in Tights, don't they have a similar scene where Richard Lionheart shows up? I think so. But it's Patrick Stewart, and it's just like yeah. I'm renowned British actor Patrick Stewart. <laughs> like, like that's exactly right. what this is like. Again, except this isn't done for comedy. It's done for you know effect. Like, right? Yeah. So. With that, we can now move into our next segment, uh-huh. where they talk about what they got right and what they got wrong, uh, what, which is called... What you call it? Very false. <laughs> I would call it that. I just made myself <laughs> giggle every couple of things that they got right because then there's a lot of things that they didn't get right okay so the first thing i'm gonna say so he at the beginning right he ends up in england and it's four months later mm-hmm. travel to and from jerusalem is quite lengthy and often beset by various seasonal delays and four months seems plausible yeah as an amount of time it might take so good job also, I think a more or less decent job that Wolf, Little John's son, is put under arrest for poaching. And, you know, that makes sense. Poaching is a pretty common offense. Uh, a lot of the land in England is uh, forests that are kind of put under royal or other protection mm-hmm. and regular people aren't allowed to hunt in them. And that was, and, that was going uh, on. You know, like Irish people were getting strung oh, yeah. up and, and hung for poaching as late as 1870, 1880. Oh, yeah. So the fact that he, A, is doing this, and B, that there would potentially be a pretty harsh punishment is not entirely out of the ordinary. So I'd say that's that's all fair. 
then there's some stuff that's uh, kind of so-so. So uh, first I will talk about there is the Third Crusade. We have an opening crawl that says 800 years ago, Richard the Lionheart, King of England, led the Third Great Crusade to reclaim the Holy Land from the Turks. Most of the young English noblemen who flocked to his banner never returned home. We start off okay. Mm-hmm. It is 800 years ago. This movie came out in 1991, and they left in 1190, precisely 801 years before the film was released. Nice, nice. Good job. The Turks, not so much. They are trying to take Jerusalem not from the Turks, but from the Ayyubid Sultan Saladin, who is of Kurdish background. She is not Turkish. There is a Turkish polity, the Seljuk Turkish Sultanate of Rum. But this is a completely different polity, and there are some kind of fights that happen between the Turks and the uh, Crusaders who are under the leadership of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, but that's not actually who's holding Jerusalem, so or the Holy Land. Because <laughs> everybody does like this little, like, oh, Robin Hood is, like, is of the time when there was a crusade, so maybe he's a crusader, and it's, like, this choice that, like, I, I actually find sort of odd, but it's often made. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually think it's in, I haven't checked, but I don't think that's actually something that's in the original Legends. I think that's a modern, like, ooh, these things are at the same time. But at least that's better... Yeah. The original version that I read of Robin Hood does not have anything about Crusades. Yeah, no, that's that was my... Yeah, he, he just, he falls... The, it's about King Richard the Lionheart. It's because it's said right. at the time it's about King Richard. But it's not... The, the Crusades are not linked to it in any way. It's just while he was away, somebody is trying to take things. It's not Robin was away at the Crusades. And when he comes back right. and stuff. Robin yeah. is just a, a low-level... Um, in... The, the first version I'm trying to think God it's been I don't know how many versions of Robin Hood I've read at this age um, but the very very first ones he's not even a nobleman he's just a dude right yeah, yeah. he stands yeah, up for the it's later that he yeah, gets turned into a nobleman it's later that becomes like oh he must have been a nobleman to have people follow him like that to like him the same yeah. as King Arthur had to have been a Roman right and of course, also, the reason Richard's gone so long is ultimately not actually the Crusades. It's that he gets uh, taken captive and is being held for ransom by ultimately the Holy Roman Emperor for several years. And so, like, the again, like, the reason he's gone for such a lengthy period of time isn't even entirely due to the Crusades. And that's the whole kind of problem that comes up in a lot of these Robin Hood stories, the fact that he's gone for so long and that there's uh, kind of issues and with you know with the fact that essentially you don't have a king yeah uh it's also i would say not not that great of a crusade for <laughs> a couple reasons uh first of all from a modern perspective i don't think any of the crusades are so great because they're like hey we like christian europeans are gonna like take your land because we don't like your religion so like kind of fuck that and then also this crusade in particular is kind of a disappointment in that the goal is to retake Jerusalem, which had been lost seven, uh, seven years before this movie takes place. I think if I'm remembering. Was it lost because of the actions of King of heaven? Yes. (laughs) They watch kingdom of heaven and they're like, no, you don't deserve this shit. We're taking Jerusalem now. (laughs) Uh, and, you know, 
and so the goal is then to retake Jerusalem, and that's why you have this crusade, and they don't retake Jerusalem, although they do have some other important successes. And so in the grand scheme of things, like it's in some ways not even an entirely successful or great crusade. Uh, I also just want to note that in this prison, which is clearly supposed to be a like Muslim prison, the guy has an aggressively like English Cockney accent. It's very funny. Guard. Get over here! <laughs> like he sounds more English than Kevin Costner. Cut his hand off. <laughs> so that is entertaining. He sounds very similar to Beowulf. Yes. <laughs> but of course, I'm talking about all- sexy Beowulf. Oh, yes. Always sexy Beowulf with his many penises and things definitely covering his penis. Speaking of how ungenerous I am, now I'm going to be an asshole about material culture in this movie. Mm-hmm. So first of all, we have a couple of appearances of the Bayou Tapestry. So it's included first in the opening credits. This is, okay, at the very least, like, I'll give them this. The Bayou Tapestry exists by this point. It was completed in the 1070s. It, however, has nothing to do with Robin Hood. And the real problem is that later we see Marion and she's embroidering the Bayou Tapestry, which was finished 120 years earlier. (laughs) Um, It's like I'm going to put Robin in this. Also, that's another thing. The credits are really long in this. They are really long. And I know it's... You could cut the credits too and that would contribute to this movie being like 90 minutes. From the time period with lots of credits. But uh, I watched... Obviously, I watched this today. What did I watched something else during the week. Oh, yeah. I watched Spider-Man from 2002 uh, for the first time. So it's a, like obviously a Marvel movie or whatever. And I, I mm-hmm. tuned in to watch it. And the credits on that are incredibly, like, I mean, crazy long. Like, yeah. And it's just constantly flicking through the things and like, and it's like, I get it. There's spider webs and there's DNA mixed in with it and stuff. It's still like going... Are we seven minutes in and it's just credits? Right. Like, oh, I mean, thank God most movies shoot that. I don't mind a good tel- credit sequence and I like credits showing up at the start of a movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I like the way that they were, that nowadays, now they're usually diegetically in there. They'll just like show up on the side of a building right. to be directed by and it'll be part of the scene or whatever. But. Or like in Watchmen where they have that really interesting credit sequence and the movie goes way downhill from there. We also have the uh, assorted filming locations, and I will say the filming locations are lovely, and it's cool that they filmed on location. Carmen agrees, which is why she's jumping up on my lap. (laughs) But as usual, you know, the filming locations are basically, well, this is medieval. So Nottingham's exterior is the fortress of the Cité de Carcassonne in southern France, And while parts of it would have been in existence, the fortress was heavily restored in the 19th century by Viollet le Duc in basically one of his like, well, I think it should have looked like this sort of restorations. (laughs) (laughs) So it probably didn't quite look like that in the 12th century. We also have uh, Loxley Castle is a ruined 14th century castle and Marion's home is 13th century. So, mixed bag there. But at least they made uh, an effort. At least they are, like... Yeah. One thing I would say about them is, when they go to Marion's castle, it looks like a castle that might have existed in that rough time frame. Whereas, there are yeah. versions of it, like, um, in the the other version of Robin Hood we watched, the, um, 
the uh, the Ridley no the Ridley Scott the Ridley Scott version uh, where they yeah. go to Marion's castle and uh, it's clearly like 18th century 16th 17th you know like oh yeah like, it's ridiculous it's the 1700s so 18th century and you're like no wait of course not like that is not a medieval castle the rooms are huge they did not they couldn't make yeah. rooms that large back in the time because you know they didn't have building technologies to do it like right these at least like these are exteriors that make sense and that are i think solid filming locations that people who aren't assholes like me would probably you know not find incongruous and i actually do also think they did a pretty good job at interiors so i appreciate that the church interior and that was done on a set is mostly a kind of kind of Romanesque in look, which works because we're still in a period where there are some Gothic churches being built, but we still uh, haven't like entered the period where like most churches would be Gothic in style. So the only uh, thing missing is choice. that if I'm going to be looking at a Romanesque style church, I want to see the tower look like a penis. Right. That is true. That is true. You got to have that penis tower. And we do not. We do not have the penis tower because we only have the interior. Which is a, a crying shame. And that's that's also not yeah. a joke. For Obviously, there are people who are listening who understand and know exactly what I'm talking about. But for those of you who don't know what a Romanesque church looks like, they look like penises. They have the round towers. And they don't all look like penises. They, every single one Some of them, them, Sarah. Some of them, particularly in Andorra, look like penises. The ones in Andorra might as well be just a collection of dicks on the mountain. Which I'm not complaining about because they're good. <laughs> they're very attractive, though. We then, however, do have some slightly odd additions. So in this lovely Romanesque church, we've got this, like, dumb fucking Baroque sculpture, which is ridiculous. Uh, Sarah, I, the more, every time it comes up, I genuinely think you hate anything Baroque. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I do. Yeah, I do. Like, I absolutely hate Baroque anything Baroque. shit! If it's not Baroque, don't fix it. <laughs> oh, Sarah. <laughs> but no like baroque is hideous i'm sorry it's like elaborate it's like overly elaborate to the point of like self-parody but they take them but they take it seriously and i don't like it as a style <laughs> sorry, i'm just um, I'm laughing at tip it's not baroque don't fix it <laughs> So then we've got Robin's father has a portrait of his son, which looks like it was done by Egon Schiele, who's like a, what, 19th century Austrian artist. And it's a weird choice. And then Nottingham has this bust of himself, which is at best Renaissance and arguably Baroque. Yeah, it is. It's certainly it's a weird people. bust. Like it's, a, it's one of those plot points, which is just, stop. No, come on. Stop it. No. Right. So, yeah. So we're not great on... We're kind of, you know, we're so-so. We're, we're overall not great, but we've got a few bright spots in our material culture. Uh, but then we have the telescope. They would not have... Even in the Islamic world, they did not have telescopes at this period. Not, not telescopes that he can take apart and put back together himself. Because earlier right. in that scene, he's using... Um, yes. It's a convex lens, and he's using it to look at his own beard. Um, which, yes, if right. you had and a perfect lenses. lens, you can do, but... Right. And they did actually have, I think, pretty decent corrective lenses by this period in the Islamic world in particular. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, they would have had the ability to make pretty successful lenses by the 11th century, but they don't have this kind of telescope that's going to be able to like be set up to see quite that distance that effectively. Um, or yeah, the kind of like putting it apart, taking it back to, uh, yeah, whatever, however you say that in English, mm. um, taking it apart and putting it back together and that kind of like the long structure, how telescopes look. I'm trying to mind the telescope. Yeah, look, because you I see the problem is medium. with it as, uh, this is where the physics teacher can come in. It, it's very specific locations for what he wants to do, right? So he's got mm -hmm. a, basically a letter pouch or letter a letter script even as maybe you'd call it that he's going to fold up and then tie and then have a lens at either end which is brilliant except that right. you have no way to reposition the lenses which means you would only be focused on right. one point one distance away from you which right. is no good because if something's coming towards you you're not going to be in focus the entire time you're only going to be able to focus on something mm -hmm. which is 100 meters away or 150 meters away whatever right. it is you happen to have it set up so it's a weird way to have a position because even if you are going to make a telescope even the very first telescopes they had adjustable adjustable levels like they weren't just here's two lenses yeah, yeah. so yes and my understanding is that telescopes of this kind are 17th century in terms of the earliest thing that would be even slightly parallel to this finally I will just have my one bitch about names because I always bitch about names, which is that Marion's servants are Sarah and Rebecca because she thinks she's in the fucking Bible, I guess. Yeah. Uh, these kinds of biblical, what Christians would call the Old Testament names are not at all popular. Sorry, what, what do you call the Old Testament? The Hebrew Bible. Because we don't have a new, we don't think there's a New Testament, so it's not old. Sure, sure whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever, Sarah. Let's move on to the next bit. Historia et veritas. Also, just for the record, for anyone listening, I'm not religious. Just, just in case anyone's like, Jesus, all these, he's strongly, he's so strongly Christian that all over really. I don't give a shit. I'm a physicist. What the hell, I mean, giant space god out there is looking after me. Anyway, uh, Historia et Veritas, where we look at a real historical event, person, or phenomenon. And Sarah, I think you want to talk about the mystical black man in this movie. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about some things related to Morgan Freeman's character, particularly because uh, this film very intensely emphasizes his blackness and people's reaction to it. And I wanted to talk about this in particular, in part because, of course, we're at yet another moment when the white supremacists are at it again, appropriating the Middle Ages, one of our fun, friendly gentlemen entering the White House, or not the White House, sorry, they love the White House, um, entering the Capitol building in the coup the other day, had a series of Viking-inspired tattoos, as well as uh, a little horned helmet because nobody missed the bit in class where they taught him the Vikings didn't actually wear horned helmets. Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, race and blackness in the medieval world and uh, just a couple of notes in, that I wanted to mention that I am particularly indebted here to the work of Geraldine Heng and I highly recommend her book The Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages. And also, just worth mentioning, we are white people who are talking about this, and that, of course, does influence our perspective. Uh, just 
white people and by white Sarah means I'm glowing in the dark um, Sarah at least has sallow skin and can pass for some vague <laughs> European things nobody's looking at me he's not going I am as white as it comes so um, I like to think that I'm pretty good on race relations but sometimes I will say stuff which is just fucking flat out wrong and I, I genuinely don't mean any I don't mean any harm in it but if I do say something which comes out feel free to like comment on it because I, I'm always open to learning and I'm always open to realising that you know talking shit even when you're trying to be funny is not sometimes the best thing to do so if I seem like I'm quiet at this point it's one because I just sent uh, a link to Sarah on how to get the look of um, our friend who sat in the Capitol building and two it's just because I don't want to sound like an idiot at this point Yes, well, so I, of course, am also somebody who benefits from white privilege, but uh, I am going to at least try to kind of do justice to what we uh, know about blackness in the medieval world. So first of all, there are black people in the Middle Ages, in, including in Europe and other non-white people as well, even in a place like England, which is usually assumed to be a completely racially, ethnically homogenous state. So first of all, you know, they would have existed. Second, despite the frequent racist appropriations of the medieval past, people in the Middle Ages weren't white supremacists, in part because they didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about themselves as white. Whiteness isn't an identity. It only becomes so in the modern period. There is, however, a legacy of talking about blackness in a variety of ways, which are not all necessarily super positive. So I will just start that there are some neutral or positive depictions of blackness. So for example, the figure of St. Maurice, who is a knight martyr who is uh, traditionally depicted as being black and is, you know, uh, supposed to be the great guy, one of your, one of your great martyr knights. And uh, we also have one of the three magi, uh, Balthazar, is traditionally depicted as black in a lot of medieval uh, visuals. Sarah, can I just ask a question? You just mentioned that... Um... Yeah. Like so, race identifying as race is a modern phenomenon. When would when would that have started? Mm -hmm. uh, I would say really, kind of fifteenth, sixteenth century. But in terms of a lot of the kind of specific discourses about race that would be most familiar today, a lot of those are actually even much more modern. I mean, a lot of those are coming out of rhetoric that's really nineteenth century. Mm. Yeah. So, so yeah, so it's really, race isn't exactly a medieval phenomenon, but there is a lot of conversation that's happening now about the extent to which they're sort of developing certain kinds of racial thinking in the medieval world. Yeah, and essentially. around about this time, um, so if we take Turks to represent, I was going to say the darker skinned people of the time, right? But there were definitely, the Ottoman Empire was involved with Europe like they like it's so when when you say there were definitely right. well, people we're, around yeah. that was definitely something that was happening but also incursions from north africa into europe were happening and vice versa like mm -hmm. i mean at the end of the yeah. day there's less than what is there 150 miles or something between the iberian peninsula and the northland the mainland of north africa like people were traveling right. between the two 
Right, exactly. And so we're so we're still at this period where before the Ottoman Empire a bit, but there are still relationships of various kind, uh, some hostile and some not, with various uh, Muslim-ruled polities where people are of a variety of ethnic backgrounds. Yeah. And yeah, and as you mentioned, North Africa, you know, at this point, we have uh, essentially North African, uh, North Africans or people of North African background ruling much of the or parts of the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, so again, you know, and so in the Iberian Peninsula in particular, there is an immense amount of, uh, uh, you know, kind of ethnic diversity and but people also did people travel, people moved around. And uh, so and so part of this is also that the idea of there being this like utter shock at the concept of a black person uh, doesn't, in fact, seem quite right to me, given that. Yeah, it's, it does seem strange in the movie. And it's weird because in many ways, it's great that they have this character in the movie because a lot of Robin yeah. Hood adaptions are genuinely Robin Hood so white. I mean, every single oh, character yeah. is a white person in pretty much every adaptation before this point. So for them to have black people in it is good or a black person in it. It's just, it's weird mm-hmm. that they're making it to the point it's like, yes, put him in, but also other him throughout the movie because nobody seems to know what he is. Right. Like, like, don't touch the woman's stomach when she's pregnant. You're going to do something to the baby. Like, come on. Like, yeah, they, they weren't going to be at yeah. that point where, oh, you're going to do your effectively mysticism onto this child. Right. And it's so it's also interesting because I believe this is actually the first example we have of Robin Hood essentially having a black kind of sidekick character. And that then becomes this kind of interesting constant in a lot of Robin Hood adaptations. So, I mean, for example, that in the uh, the relatively recent Robin Hood, we've got Jamie Foxx now playing basically the same, you know, essentially kind of magical Effectively the role. same character. I am going to show you ninja yeah. skills. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting because it does introduce what could be some much needed representation into stories of the medieval world, which in general are often overly white uh, but yeah, but in this film in particular, there's this ways in which it's kind of uh, getting into this kind of magical black man trope, as well as uh, the kind of constant emphasis on the fact that he is other and that that's the, to some extent, the kind of most prominent aspect of his character is the fact that he is seen as other. Mm. The other things that I wanted to note are that there uh, is some amount of uh, negative discourse that we do have in the real Middle Ages about blackness at this point. Uh, So essentially, allegorically, blackness is often associated with sin, uh, and sometimes even going so far as to be associated with uh, kind of the devil or with the demonic. And so sometimes when you have people who are portrayed as being dark-skinned, as with the case of Maurice or with Balthazar, it's essentially a neutral choice. But in other cases, it's very, uh, as based on art historians' analyses, in other cases, it seems to be a choice that's made to demonstrate that this person is sinful or this person is non-Christian and has not been redeemed and needs to be saved or redeemed. Uh, or even, as I said, that this person should be kind of associated with the demonic in some way. Now, when when you say that, when art historians are going back through this now, 
is there any chance because obviously it's not and I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not a historian and I don't want to smirch historians and how they make up all their stories but um, or, or every single one of them um, but is there a chance that there's an unconscious bias that they're coming at it with a modern view on things they're like oh this character is represented as black in this story because they represent sin but they're actually looking at it with the eyes of a 20 2015 2016 mm-hmm. person who's interpreting as oh well black is bad so therefore even back in the medieval yeah. period the, the the reason that they've called painted this demon black is because black represents sin or whatever is there a chance that that's happening or it just so happens to be that they use black because black stood out more in the picture <laughs> I would say it's probably a little of each, that there certainly are examples where people have kind of read in blackness where it's not there. So for example, that Tolkien actually made the weird choice in an essay he wrote to interpret Grendel as black, something that is not actually ever explicitly stated in the poem. And so there's that kind of weird modern mapping of ideas about race onto medieval texts and images. Uh, That is sometimes something we do see. Uh, But there are also, I would say, uh, cases in which the, at least I can say that the arguments I've read have felt very convincing for arguing that at least it's not always necessarily that this person is demonic, but that actually even, for example, that there are these weird, like, this person is black and then they got baptized and now they're white. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wash away the sin guys yeah exactly exactly uh so that that kind of discourse does exist it's just that it there's not always a kind of clear mapping i think in medieval imaginations between that kind of ideology with an actual human black person like i don't think that the fact that you have this kind of discourse necessarily means that real medieval people would always necessarily look at a person who was of darker skin and assume based on that that they are in some ways sinful oh i get you so even though they're representing the sin or the the non-religious thing as black it's not associated with their skin tone it's more uh, reflection on their purity so you're not pure until you are baptized then suddenly you are baptized you're white it's not you are a black person therefore you have more sin than a white person right i get you yeah right yeah and there's also i mean there's certainly there's different kinds of kind of you know competing discourses and uh, obviously you know medieval people aren't a monolith and there's some expressions of this kind of ideology that kind of seem more iffy than others but i would say overall we ultimately don't actually have a quite as kind of overall negative a discourse about blackness as we actually do argue or about blackness as actually something that is you know a person's ethnicity or you know ancestry I think that we actually don't have anywhere near as vitriolic a discourse about that in the Middle Ages as we do in, say, the 17th or the 19th century. Yeah. And when when did, and this is not changing the subject too much, because, um, well, actually, now that I think about it, it is changing the subject a lot. And I don't mean it to, to come across that way. It's just because I happen to be reading the next paragraph that you've written. Um, so this idea of black people being different to us um there's the idea of black people being lesser than us or whatever happens to be 
when did that also come in for other religions as opposed to other skin colors so the idea that jews were somehow lesser like when when was that a thing that was around in oh that's early yeah, like that's that's early. Yeah. So, because that's the thing is that I would say the most crucial category of difference in the medieval world isn't actually skin tone or, or that kind of ethnicity. It's religion, and uh, so the discourses that are actually much more vitriolic and are much more like, well, this person is completely irredeemable and evil and can never be saved. And even if you get baptized, like maybe you're still a little bit of a problem. That's mostly focused on, I would say actually in some ways, predominantly Jews and secondarily Muslims. So that was more, so let's just call it racism because it is right. But Mm -hmm. the racism was much more sectarian focused as opposed to skin color focused. At this time, right? Yeah, that if you're that if you're talking about certainly the at least the kind of origins of racial thinking in the Middle Ages, I think that you actually arguably can see something that sounds more like modern racism in discourse about Jews than you actually have in discourse about blackness, and in many ways, I would say the kind of rise of anti-black racism and the kind of construction of whiteness versus blackness as a kind of crucial to European identities. That really is something I think that comes very much with the mass enslavement of black Africans, which doesn't happen until the 16th century. And that's what I, yeah, it's always felt that way when I'm watching these movies that there's like of all of the things that they try to put in, they, they put in these pervading thoughts that, are 500 600 years too late which is black people are yeah. lesser uh oh i i i am distrustful of this person because they're a different skin color which might not necessarily been the point at the time so for example if the, if mm-hmm. people in 1190 saw a black person like morgan freeman they wouldn't automatically assume that there was something wrong with them if they found out he was a muslim right. they might be like oh then well, that would be more of a problem yes but yeah. not He's, he's black so therefore I'm not even going to offer him a drink like that and exactly. that's the that's the kind of way it's represented in the movie is just by looking at him these people hate him and are distrustful of him whereas and they're like segregationists who won't drink out of the same like who won't drink out of the same water fountain as him which is like essentially that's is essentially what, how they represented the it yeah. they're not even going to offer him the drink yet and this is very much something that I don't think this movie is intentionally white supremacist. You know, I think that the movie is trying to be like, I think the movie is trying to be like, look, diversity, you know, in the very like 90s sort of way, which is obviously problematic in itself. But it feels especially dangerous now to present the Middle Ages in this way, because it ultimately gives credence to these white supremacist claims that basically we love the Middle Ages because we as white supremacists think that the Middle Ages was this like period of racial purity, where if God forbid one black person showed up, like we'd like quickly, you know, get rid of them, I guess. And that's, that is the problem is that it, it's represented in, no, the problem is that these people are scumbags, right? Um, But what's leading into them being scumbags is that every time they watch a movie or play a video game where they're representing a Viking or the sea Vikings represented, it's an homogenized society where everybody is white and a black person comes in and suddenly they have, ooh, we're a bit nervous about this person. 
Right. And, you know, and I think these people would be scumbags no matter what. I don't think this movie, you know, these movies are making them scumbags. It's reinforcing their prejudices. It's it's reinforcing and it's also giving them a discourse that they could use. And I actually do think that it's important to note there actually was a couple of years ago, this article about this person who basically was like, I was a white supremacist and then I went to college and I took a medieval studies course and I realized that like the history of the Middle Ages isn't like the history of white supremacy, and this like grand old like period of like the great white man and learning that medieval history is something that I think, especially when you're talking about people who are young and impressionable, who might have these kind of ideas, I think learning that they're wrong could have, uh, you know, some positive effect in uh, perhaps making them rethink their ideologies. So, uh, all this to say, uh, I don't think that people would have been quite as weirdly modernly racist as they were in this movie if a real black man showed up in 12th century England. And definitely not if a mystical black man had showed up who does literally nothing but good for the entire movie and still, by the end, people are like, ooh, that guy's talking to us. (laughs) How dare he. Uh, So, at this point, we can now move into our next segment, where we come up with a film or show inspired by this one, a segment called... Fabula Nostra. Um, Now, this is where we take the title of the movie and then come up with our own version of the film. Now, the last regular episode, back when I was was the co-host that we did, was Robin Hood. Um, the twenty yes. the twenty eighteen one, which is like an allegory for the war on terror in Iraq or something, um, which is pretty good. Her and then I movie. said that my version of the movie would be an adaptation of Morning Star, um, the David Gemmell novel, which is a retelling of mm-hmm. um, of Robin Hood involving vampires and stuff. Which, by the way, I bought a copy for Sarah, yeah. and it's it's sitting on my shelf in in the the sitting room in there. It's like it's literally on the inside. It's got to Sarah. Yeah. This shit has vampires in it, Ollie. Right? Um, <laughs> which is a brilliant. It's a brilliant book, and I highly recommend it. But I'm not going to retread right. that. So even though my first instinct is anytime somebody says, "Do you want to make a version of Robin Hood?" I'm like, "Yeah, but what about the one with vampires in it, where he fights the vampires <laughs> because because it's Robin great. Hood." And he's like good with an arrow, bow and arrow and stuff like this here. So he puts like silver on him. So look at the vampires. And it's really good writing and stuff. But no, not going to do that. Even though, the back of your minds, guys. Vampires. We love them, right? Robin Hood in the woods. Like vampires. Um, so Very cool. I'm going to look at the subtitle of this, which is Prince of Thieves. Right? And I would like to make a version of this movie which does not involve Robin of Loxley being... Uh, the style of Loxley, right? I'm going to have him just be a regular dude. A regular dude who sees Nottingham oh. doing a bunch of shit, taxing the poor. Because that's the, the, the real story behind Robin Hood is that's, yeah, the that's rich OG people Robin Hood. taxing everybody, right? So it's an anti-tax movie or story. It's always been an anti-tax movie, right? Or uh, anti-tax story. So I would like to make a movie version of this where it's a small guy. A guy who's getting taxed, who suddenly has his farm taken away from him. And as an Irish person, this is, you know, it's, it's what we all think about when we go back and we, we worry about the great hunger, as we call it. You guys call it the famine. Mm-hmm. There was no famine. Ireland is still 
one crop failed it's not a famine if potatoes fail if you can still grow lettuces you're just not allowed to eat them because certain other people won't allow you to and they just try to starve you to death right but um, English. when you think about that it's all caused by the landowners forcing the peasants to right. give away all of their money so I would like to see a version of this movie where he rises to the idea of being the prince of thieves but the reality is he's literally mm-hmm. just a thief he's not robbing from the rich to give to the poor he's robbing from the rich eventually yeah. he ends up giving it to the poor and spreading it around because something happens mm-hmm. maybe he sees a child die right I, i'm not a screenwriter but if i was a child would die right so you know he sees a child die from starvation he's like holy shit i'm no better than the sheriff of nottingham i'm no better than gay the gisborne mm-hmm what if I take the stuff that I steal and I start spreading it around, right? So yeah. there's a scene in this movie where uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham doesn't understand that Robin is robbing him. He is becoming in turn more cruel to make up for his losses. Mm-hmm. But because Robin is giving it to the people, they're all happy with Robin because he's like actually giving the money. And like there's a, there's a little allegory right. there for people... Um, working in companies and even though the companies are shit because they're getting paid by the company they'll go to the bat to defend them like right and you you know so you'll hear people who are like still defending Enron two years after they'd caused one of the biggest financial collapses in the world because they were working for Enron well and Amazon exactly right Um, so what I'm thinking is the idea is that Robin is playing a character who is just a scumbag just a thief who is out looking after himself and then he falls into this do-gooding way as opposed to, you know, oh, I have to come back and fight for the lands of my father. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need any of that stuff. Maid Marion can yeah. literally, uh, you know what, let's just still leave her as as uh, a woman who is, let's, let's just say she's not a maid. Let's just say she's been around the blocks here, right? So she's a popular lady, but she comes from good stock, right? Because, you know, we have to have some reason for her to be fighting with Sheriff, and Sheriff of Nottingham's not going to be chasing after a lowly wench, right? So let's just have her be somebody that is constantly trying to help the poor, just as a nice person. She's a, mm-hmm. a nice human being, yeah. right? So in my version of the story, Robin is street-level scumbag who... Something bad happens and he then goes, right, well, I'm going to help the poor. The poor start putting him up as a hero. Sheriff of Nottingham just sees him as this figurehead and I need to take down this figurehead. He's inciting a rebellion against my reign. Mm -hmm. We don't even need Richard Lionheart. Keep it as a problem for Nottingham in the woods of Nottingham because people, the Sheriff of Nottingham, he's not trying to be king. He just wants to keep control of his yeah. district and then anybody who's coming in is getting taxed by Robin Hood right because Robin is like actually right. asking them to pay a toll to go on the road right so he's not stealing mm-hmm. them of all their money he's taking 20% of the money you know what I mean it's like oh it's a tithe yeah. like this here right uh, and eventually he starts going after the church whatever it happens to be right so it's a street level story about Robin Hood being a thief who eventually turns to good because he sees what's actually happening to other people and he realizes that he's no better than them. Falls in love with Maid Marion, who falls in love with him. There's shenanigans where the Sheriff of Nottingham wants to marry her because her dad has a big castle and he wants to have a bigger castle. He's not a nobleman, mm-hmm. he's just a sheriff, but he's looking for power. We can have Guy de Gisborne being played by somebody who's a badass and you know can sword fight with him and stuff like this here, so we get loads of action. So basically, street level mm-hmm. story. 
Robin, Prince of Thieves, and how he rises up to the ranks and becomes famous. He doesn't even have to fight. Like, at the end, he can be an outlaw. He can just go off and we can have a series about it, right? So I would like to have Robin, played by Carl Urban, um, from Mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings and various other things. I happen to have been watching The Boys this week. And he does a, a possible British accent. Um, and he's also a big enough dude that you could see him being a hardy bastard. Um, he looks the part. He can play dirty. He can play clean. Um, I appreciate him. I think he's a really good actor. Uh, I think because he's in his 30s, we should cast a Maid Marion. Uh, and maybe then the fact that she's still known as Maid Marion makes sense for her to be mm-hmm. in her 30s and not married. Right? right. So let's just think of uh, an actress in her 30s who's, uh, you know, Carl Urban level attractive. Let's just say Fanke Portenta, right? Just because I like her and she's right. pretty. Um, she, she, she's not English at all. I don't think I've ever seen her do an English mm. accent, but she's the kind of character or actress that I'm thinking of for this role. I mean, obviously we can cast, you know, let's just say, um, what's the name of the actress from Rogue One? Uh, Felicity. Felicity Jones. Do you know what? There we go. It's Felicity Jones. That's who I'm going to cast because she looks like Frank and Pretenta, but she's English, right? Um, and also, I, I right. also think she's there brilliant. And then uh, the sheriff from Nottingham, I want to be played by somebody who's a little bit older, so let's just think in his 40s. But I also, and oh, because I, I try to cast him in all these movies, I, I think Fassbender would do a brilliant job of that because yeah. he looks like somebody who is an evil bastard, let's face it. Like, he just has that yeah. nasty look about him, right? He could play the sheriff. And then to play Guy, who's going to be the main antagonist physically, who's going to fight mm-hmm. him, um, let's just pick... Uh, let's Guy the Gisborne. Let's just say he's the French cousin of the king. And let's just say he's played by Jean Dujardin. Um, you know the guy from The Artist? Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So right. he's a big enough dude. He can play dirty too when he wants to, and you know, I can yeah, put that there. There you go. So that's my main cast, and yeah. and that's that's how I'd have it. Uh, all the rest of them, you can just fill out with character actors. That sounds good. It's good. So street yeah. level. It's that's about him basically that. being a thief, and then he rises up to become a famous thief. I would watch that. So I ignored the title entirely, uh, <laughs> and decided to just okay. I just took a theme instead. Mm-hmm. Which is that, so this movie could have, it does not, do something interesting with the fact that Marion is arguably somebody who's a powerful figure in her own right, right? She's the king's cousin. She is a wealthy, independent landowner, right? I mean, it seems that she's the person who has, apparently is like essentially ruling as and exercising lordship over these lands now that her brother has been absent for a long time and is now dead. Could you say the force is strong with her? Yes, I might say the force is strong with her. It's a a hint for casting. Um, So I would really love a film that focuses on Marion thinking of her as somebody who is this very wealthy landowner and who is trying to use her position to help the poor in various ways. And to think about, so then she meets Robin and I guess they'll fall in love or whatever, but Robin is going to be kind of a little bit of a side character, Um, but that she's really going to be the major character, but that it's going to be kind of thinking about essentially the fact that they are going at these same problems and they both care about these same 
issues, but in very different ways, with Robin obviously having his, like, rob the rich and give to the poor thing, and Marion being somebody who works more, say, inside the system, and the two of them kind of disagreeing about why, uh, essentially kind of which path is the right path, but, you know, they'll also, I guess, fall in love and work that all out eventually. Uh, so I am going to have... Marianne, because the force is strong with her, played by Daisy Ridley. Mm -hmm. I can see it. I can see it. And Robin as another Star Wars actor, but not the one you think. Robin is going to be played by Alden Ehrenreich. Wait, who did you think we were going to think it was? Oh, I don't know. Somebody who was actually in a movie with Daisy Ridley. <laughs> Oscar Isaac? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I always cast Oscar Isaac. I, I was going to say, I almost, I, as I was going to name Guy de Gisborne, I was like, I'm going to say Oscar Isaac, because I bet you Sarah wants to try and cast Oscar Isaac. <laughs> I know, I actually don't have Oscar Isaac. Um, I'm going to cast as the Sheriff of Nottingham, and I'm actually going to skip all the marriage stuff, because I actually... I feel like the weird, like, sexual threat against women as, like, her main plot line, I'm like, I can kind of live without that as a trope. Um, so I'm going to have uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham who is uh, going to maybe be trying to deprive her of her lands, but, like, not in a romantic way. He's just, like, trying to, like, say, like, like I don't know, like, undermine her claim in some way. Uh, he is going to be played by Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can yeah. see it. I can see it. Uh, yeah. I am still going to have an Azim-style character, although he's going to, like, you know, be kind of there, and it's not going to be everybody constantly being like, why are you black? Uh, and he is going to be played by Michael B. Jordan, because who doesn't want to see Michael yeah, B. Jordan? Yeah, you just want some... You should put an eye candy in now. Like, I mean, he's a great actor and stuff, but he's a yeah. beautiful man. He's a great actor, and he's going to be decidedly not magical, but just a cool guy. And then finally, uh, so as we've noted, uh, I'm just okay. I'm reading it so, <laughs> so as we noted, Mary in this movie has this servant who's named Sarah. And this is not, as I said, a name that Christian women would have uh, in this particular time and place. There might, however, occasionally have been Jewish women who might have this name. So I'm going to have her have, uh, say, a, uh, a Jewish uh, kind of maybe sort of like local like merchant that she's kind of working with and that's going to be her friend who's going to be named sarah and she is going to be played by the very medieval beanie feldstein <laughs> i just can't picture beanie feldstein in in any any movie other than book smart i just can't do it I'm, I'm here for it. I think she would do a... I think she's very talented, and I think she would do a great job dressed up in medieval garb. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I like Beanie Feldstein. I think she's a really good actress. But um, I just don't know. I just don't, I'm not sure if I'm by... I don't know if I'd see Daisy Ridley and her as friends. <laughs> I, I think they'd like each other. I think they'd get on well. I don't know. I think Daisy Ridley seems too aloof. Wait, hold on a second. She's an actress. Like, She's playing a different character. I would what say are we talking so. But also, it's like it actually works that, like, maybe, like, she's a little bit aloof and, uh, you know, because she's also, like, she's of higher status. So, like, they're sort of friends, but there's also, like, a kind of weird dynamic in some way in that, A, you know, she's, uh, uh, Marion is a noble woman and, B, and uh, Sarah is not, but also, you know, the whole Christian Jewish thing. 
Uh, so that Beanie is somebody who, you know, is fundamentally not of the same status as her. So they're kind of working together and they're sort of friends, but there is maybe a little bit of a remove in their relationship, given the kind of differences and status that they have. Yeah, that makes sense. I would watch that movie, sir. Hmm. All right. Which leads us to our last thing, which is where we get to give numbers to tell us how good a movie is. And I know yes. loads of people move away from this there. They're also like, oh, I don't like when people give numbers. Well, I'm giving a number. And I love giving a number for a movie because <laughs> the number tells you how good that person thought the movie was. It's so good idea. And I like to ultimately be judgmental. Exactly. And I love being judgmental. And that's what we call <laughs> the estimatio. Where we get to give it a rating. Sarah, since I'm the guest... I'm going to claim the right to go second. And that's mostly because I'm going to disagree with you when you give your score rating. That is fair. So I'm going to give this a three out of five. (laughs) And I do want to have the caveat. This is an enjoyable movie. And if somebody were to tell me they wanted to watch a Robin Hood movie, I would tell them either this or the Disney the uh, the animated one. I would those would be the two that I would oh, actually God. recommend. I, I think that's a terrible movie. Um, uh, I like it. It's charming. I know people think it's charming, and that is one sexy fox, right? But mm-hmm. I just know. <laughs> Sheriff of Nottingham comes a wolf. It's great. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so as I said, I would ultimately recommend this movie. But it's very 90s, right? Which means, first of all, gender, we're not great here. Race, we're really not great here. Why does it need to be two and a half hours? This movie didn't need to be two and a half hours. It would have been better if it wasn't two and a half hours. It's just, as I said, ultimately, I enjoyed it. Ultimately, I would recommend it. But it is also a very 90s movie that has a collection of a lot of really kind of standard medieval tropes that I don't especially like. So it's fun. It's enjoyable. You know, it's a good comfort movie. But ultimately, I think it's a three out of five movie from the perspective of this podcast. Yeah, no, I, I can see I can see where you're getting those numbers from. Um, I am going to give this a four out of five. And the reason I'm going to give it four to five okay. is because I, I love this movie. Um, I know I just spent almost the same length as the movie did shitting on the film. Um, but that's mostly just because I, I, the stuff that's in it, each of the individual scenes is fine. It's just a, so many long scenes. And there's so much stuff that's added that doesn't need to be there. I said, if you cut out the entire right. Christian Slater plot line, he doesn't need to be there. Literally 100% doesn't need yeah. to be there. You take that out, the movie's suddenly less than two hours long, right? And if this yeah. movie is an hour and 55 minutes, I think it barrels along and does everything you want it to do, right? Yeah. The problem is it's just so damn long. And that's why I'm taking the half or the, the full start off it. Um, otherwise, I, I would give it a five out of five. What I would say is, if you want to watch a movie from this time period that involves swords and stuff like this here... I I recommend the Robin Hood we or not the Robin Hood the um the uh Three Musketeers we covered from nineteen ninety three yeah and also the Man in the Iron Mask which myself and Sarah watched uh and we haven't covered on the podcast yet but eventually I, I will be back day. to talk about it because it's just a crack it's a rollicking good movie right and I get yeah. it that it's not Robin Hood but if you're going to watch something that's just going to be fun for the time I would say go watch either of those two movies they're more fun. Mm-hmm. 
and they don't have the same bogged down in the middle let's shoehorn in the stuff right. that doesn't need to be there and that's the main problem I have with this movie I would genuinely look I've watched this maybe as many times as any other movie that I've watched right I mean I always talk mm-hmm. about people that say like Highlander's the movie I've seen the most and it is um, Dirty Dancing has to be number two I've seen that so many times because mm-hmm. we only had like four videos when we were kids and my sisters loved it and I'll be honest with you I loved it too it's a really good movie and we sat down and we used to watch mm-hmm. it over and over and over again but once I moved out and I was living as an adult on my own this was I think the first DVD I purchased with my own money right that's that's how yeah. much I enjoy this movie uh, so when I say four out of five it's a genuinely enjoyable movie it's just when you're going to back to mm-hmm. watch it now in 2020 when you've got a mobile phone that has 700 games on it and Facebook and all of these things that you can look into the bits that bog down really hold it back but each of the individual scenes is fine as much as I like the shit on Alan Rickman and how he's in a different movie he's really really good performance in it it's a really good performance yeah well worth watching just to watch him it's just it's a shame to me that he feels like he's in a different movie but yeah four to five i don't feel bad about giving it four to five i know it's not of the movies that you've covered the thing it's not in the top 10 quality wise but it's definitely in my mm-hmm. top five entertainment wise that i'm going to enjoy and i yeah. will probably yeah. watch it more i'm more likely to watch this than any other movie except possibly the three musketeers version we did or you know obviously Trenton yeah. Warrior. Which is the greatest. And I will say, you know, I actually think that also, like, if we combined our ratings, I think that, like, a 3.5 out of 5 is actually probably, like... Yeah, I almost almost gave it a 3.5 because this... I I just can't. It's a movie I enjoy too much to give it a a 3.5. And I actually almost went up to three and a half and you'll, I actually didn't because I remembered I gave 13th Warrior a three out of five. And I think this is actually, a, I, uh, I think listen, that's actually a better listen, movie that I I'll like more. I'll never so. forget that you only gave it a three and five. That's a five star movie if ever there was a five star movie. A movie doesn't have to be perfect to get five stars. It has to be perfect at doing what it's trying to do. And it's trying to make a yeah. little horror story based around Grendel. Anyway, that's beside the point. Yeah. But I will say, but anyway, but that I think is a better movie and a movie that I like more and a movie that I have shown my students. Um, and I gave that a three out of five. So I was like, well, I can't give this higher. Oh, yeah. How did so. the students enjoy Judging Warrior? I remember you saying that they, they thought it was they good, but it. not brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I would say they, they liked it. I think some of them liked it more than others. I think some of them really liked it and some of them were kind of so-so. Um, they were all, however, appropriately disgusted by the spitball scene, and it was a true delight to be able to tell them that the spitball scene was real. Ooh, disgusting. Uh, uh, Sarah? Yeah? Where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> I'm running your podcast for you. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, where I make bitchy political comments, at Sarah F. Decker, and also at Sarah F. Decker on Instagram, where I post pictures of food. Uh, you can also find the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. You can join our Facebook group and you can and should subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Ali, can we find you on the internet or are you a ghost? I'm, I'm pretty much a ghost because I don't, I don't do podcasts anymore. Okay. Although, um, uh, Sarah, you've been on Judging Book Covers and Megan 
yes. from Judging Book Covers asked me to do a podcast with her, and I'm genuinely considering it. Ooh, except good. that she asked me to do a podcast about the TV show Supernatural. Um, so you'd have to watch it. Yeah, I'd have to watch it. I've never seen an episode, guys. I've never seen an episode of Supernatural. Um, so I also have never seen an episode of Supernatural. I I would have to watch the show, and then she casually dropped into the chat. She was like, "Oh yeah, you know, it's only three hundred and seventy episodes." So at, at one, <laughs> it's like three. It's like fifteen, sixteen seasons, apparently. What? Yeah. Jesus. Yes, I know. Uh, so. I was thinking like at one episode a week that's like six years so um, as much as I'm thinking about doing it I, I, I'm assuming that uh, I would be the third host out of three and that I would only show up every now and then because I can't commit to six years of a podcast even though I love Megan Megan's the best but um, yeah <laughs> that that could be something I, we might look at in the future so look out for a Supernatural podcast with me and I, uh, I think right. I technically got an Instagram with like 40 followers that I've never posted on. So if you're on Sarah's Instagram, look for... Are you my... Have you followed me on Instagram, Sarah? I think so. So look for so. look for the blank one with my name on it. I don't even know what it is. On, I don't know if you put an at in front of them. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I just happen to have one. So uh, feel free to come and be my friend on Instagram or however that works. Um, I was going to leave with a joke at the end because... I wanted to make the worst joke, but then Sarah made her. If it's not Baroque, I made the worst joke. Sure. <laughs> I am going to do this joke, so uh, I'm going to play a character. I'm playing Robin Hood, right? So Robin Hood comes along and okay. he, he sees his friend, and his friend's like poor Jimmy, we call him. And Robin walks up and he goes, "Jimmy, Jimmy, look what I got you!" And he gives him like this thing of jewels and gems that uh, Jimmy's never had before, and he gets it. And Jimmy looks and he goes, "Oh my God, I'm rich." Robin squints at him and goes, "You're what?" <laughs> and that's that's the end of my job. This has been Media Evil. Thank you for listening, Ollie. Thank you for coming for joining me. And Sarah froze, so I'm just gonna wave at the camera and say bye. <laughs> <laughs>